Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo wishes to take a break from the established guard and allow fresh young faces and voices into the mix when it comes to the directors of motion pictures. Yes, hot new voices and talents to bring a sizzle to the silver screen and Oh, oh my, did it did it get a little ch- chilly in here? Oh, God, it feels a little cold. Well, well, don't worry, ladies and gentlemen, that breeze you feel is not what it appears to be. It is, in fact, a breeze of change from a new director who may strike you as cold until you dig, dig further down. He hails from New York, and his keen eye will be presented tonight with his newest endeavor from United Artists, a film that will upend many conventions of the heist thriller and bring further depth into the world of film noir. The man is Stanley Kubrick, and we will now witness his 1956 outing, The Killing. See the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. You ever take a few thousand? I figured the loot on this deal at two million. There should be that much in the track offices. big dollar sign there where most women have a heart so play it smart stay in character and you'll have money plenty of it george will have it he'll blow it all on you johnny i'm no good for anybody else i'm not pretty and i'm not very smart so please don't leave me alone anymore so what makes you think or know that you're gonna have several hundred thousand dollars because i do i just can't talk about it that's all not even to me, your little share. I shouldn't have even mentioned I was going to have it. It's not that I mind. I know I can trust you. But if these other guys the ever... The other guys? I can't talk about it, Cherry. You've been talking. I you spilled to her. I didn't ask. What, do you think I'm crazy? I wouldn't jerk, you clown. Come on, clown. Sing us a chorus from Pagliacci. Hey, where's the jerk? Where's George? <laughs>
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1956, Stanley Kubrick released his third film, The Killing, to a less-than-notified public thanks to the bumbling and indifference of United Artists. But the film would capture critical attention and serve as a calling card for the director, whose legacy now looms large in the world of filmmaking and film students teasing others who don't uh, become uh, ardent fanboys on the immediate get-go. But in fact, Kubrick's early efforts may be overlooked when you have hits like Dr. Strangelove, A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, and Eyes Wide Shut to compete for when it comes to attention. Just how does Kubrick's earliest outings shape him as a filmmaker, and how does it shape the film world for years to come? There are many wonderful answers, but we need help if we're going to pull off this little caper here. So rather than finding a Georgian wrestler, we find a wrestler from New York. Uh, his uh, By wrestler, I mean he wrestles film knowledge to the ground and, and just and, and tames it. Uh, he is a astute vocal performer whose talents can be heard each and every outing of the No Soap radio crew and their recreations of old-time radio broadcasts. But he is a lover of Kubrick, and tonight his knowledge will be utilized to full benefit as we welcome the one and only Tony Semchuk. Thank you. Thank you. It's mm-hmm. not like the pressure's on. No, no, no. It's it's this so this is a little context for people listening in is um so we met through the No Soap Radio crew. Um Correct. And from there um I think you followed me on Twitter first or I followed you. I can't remember what it was, but I remember your bio specifically of being a Kubrick lover and I was like, well, if he ever comes on, I'm going to I'm going to call that out because this is a filmmaker that is full disclosure to the audience. I am not a major fanboy of, and in in film school, that can get you cross-eyed looks. <laughs> um, oh wow! I mean, I I mean, I am a I am I do worship at the Church of Kubrick. That is correct. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you know, you like what you like. But mm-hmm. I mean, even now, even now in film school, you, you, are you looked askance, or is it more? Is it more of the later folks like Tarantino and Spielberg, and who's so, rising to the top? So here's the thing: when I was in film school, which was we're we're approaching now like ten years ago since I left. Okay. Um, because I did the dropout thing, which was not advisable. Did finish school, guys. Um, uh, Join uh, the club. I, yeah, I remember being uh, encouraged to go to Kubrick because people around me were becoming fans. Mm. And up mm. until that point, the only Kubrick films that I had watched were The Shining and Doctor Strangelove. So mm. I, I, I invested. I got at the time DVDs were still the most accessible, so I got that nice Kubrick box set that had like oh the, right yeah, yes the, the white one right or no no the black one the one with the two disc oh. editions so oh yeah. okay okay now, now I saw The Shining through that white that white snap case um, mm. back in um, back at the library um, which because out of all the King books I've, I've only read three King books The Shining Carrie and uh, Gerald Game and. Uh, the Shining was uh, one of those books that I read before watching the movie, and I it, it shaped the way I thought about the movie at the time. Um, and so I went through the Kubrick mill. Um, I saw everything that was pretty much in the in the box set. Um, his earlier career, though, uh, got me entranced with the killing solely. Mm-hmm. Um, Paths of Glory and Spartacus. Spartacus I had seen before. Paths of Glory I had not seen for until, for until years years later. So like it came in ebbs and flows, but like every time I tried to get into him, I just wasn't I just wasn't on the wavelength. I was just like this. I feel distant from this filmmaker. Like I I don't I'm not seeing what he's either wanting me to see 
or I'm not caring about what he wants me to see. Well, I mean, I get that. I mean, a lot of people, I, I know a lot of people describe Kubrick as cold. Mm-hmm. I find his films incredibly emotional. Mm-hmm. The first time someone told me that, I was like, what are you talking about? But I get, but I do understand, it, it, I guess, to to certain people, it can look, the later movies can be a bit antiseptic looking. I, 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 I Let me put it this way. I don't feel this way, but I understand how people can feel that way. Yeah. So I, I understand what you're, what you're talking about with me it was i mean pretty instant i guess or i started to kind of get it and I, and I didn't even really come to him until my really my 20s but mm-hmm. well that makes see like and that's the thing and i texted you this before we started recording is that i rewatched 2001 a space odyssey for the first time in mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um which that was one i watched in high school too so it was those those three ones there and then I, the box set was like clockwork orange i didn't see until college and and i have not watched the film since um but 2001 watching that one i felt way more emotional resonance this time around and i think it had to do with partially because of this show i get exposed to international cinema as well as american fair but i'm watching the evolution and i i've grown to a point where i enjoy meditative cinema and that mm. movie is an immensely meditative That's movie. Incredibly meditative. Yeah, it's like the ultimate test in that, and it is pure cinema for like ninety percent of it because it's mostly silent. Yeah, um, you are you are driven by an emo- by a visual journey, and not the dialogue means nothing. Like in two thousand and one. Yeah, a- yeah. Apart from Hal's breakdown, going like David, stop. I'm sorry. Right, I'll be right, good. Right. Daisy. <laughs> And even then, there's an emotional connection to mm-hmm. the machine because I saw it the most recent time other than, I mean, like in a theater. The most recent time was that 50th Ooh. anniversary. Remember, this? They, they did the screenings. They released it. Is that the one? Uh, is that the one that Nolan supervised the 70 millimeter print of it? Yeah, but but the point was it's on film. We we haven't we haven't uh enhanced it or anything right yeah so that went around on a 70 millimeter print and it was interesting uh, i could feel the audience like i you could almost hear people going oh mm. oh like they were feeling something for him so it's it's uh and and like i said in my text earlier the more you watch some of these things the more certain things resonate more but you get a like for example the killing I hadn't yeah. seen it in a couple of years, whatever, two, three years. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but there are certain movies I may have seen like three or four times. And then on the third time, it's like I've really seen it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Like you, you're so used to it. Now you're looking at other the other shades and colors of what's going on. And that was true of la- I watched it last night. And that, that was very true last night. Like, oh, maybe later we'll we'll talk about you know points, you know, little little interesting points. And there were like three or four things that all of a sudden I was like, whoa, uh, <laughs> I, I had not I had not noticed that before. So yeah, that that is um, it, for the killing. It for me it was really connecting dots to things that I love outside of Golden Age Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, and truly understanding how beloved Kubrick is, not just 
My my shock was that this film is way more beloved by at least filmmakers of the next generations and beyond than mm. I had reckoned with. Mm. I found the film when I found the film in in college. I found it for like cheap. It was like the cheap MGM DVD. Oh and, right, right, right. And um and watching it, and I was like, this is just a fun thriller. I didn't connect the mask to a certain uh, a certain Nolan film. I didn't I didn't even truly Actually, I didn't do, yeah, I didn't. Well, like that's the thing cuz I actually like we'll talk about it later, but like I was told okay. recently by somebody that like that mask is also an influence in the Batman TV show arena. And I'm like, "Oh, well, oh, well, okay. one, he's I know he's a fan of one. I didn't I did not reckon with Nolan possibly being a fan of the television show." <laughs> because right. if so, then we missed out on some great Batman sequels where you can yeah, have really. Mr. Freeze and <laughs> King Tut and freaking Egghead. Um, yeah, really. I would love a realistic Egghead. That that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who play him. I just I don't want know to do who it. tops who tops Vincent Price, right? I, I think what you do is you resurrect Vincent Price. There and, you and, go, and then just go like, all right, I want you to downplay. Right. <laughs> I want these puns to be dry, as dry as 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 a cracker right now, as humanly possible. Just be like, yeah. I, I can't do that. <laughs> that. The only the only problem is he'd insist that you revive Coral Brown too. So they're, they're like a pair. So no. they're a match set. Oh uh, well, I then I think this this prospect won't happen after all so okay um but um to that point though the other influence that i that it clearly has we'll talk about later but uh, i'm a huge fan of reservoir dogs um because i'm a huge i have not seen that in a long time but i but but now that you mention that i i'm like okay okay mm -hmm. i can see that yeah it's mostly the time structure and like and it's like being a tarantino fan as i've been it's like and reservoir dogs isn't my favorite of his films but i'm like i'm I've grown to love that film more the more I watch it. That's huh. a, that's one of those examples. The Killing has done the same thing with preparing for this episode. In terms of time structure and also just the way it handles its criminals, um, there's definitely like more complexes to these criminals in The Killing that you definitely see popping through Reservoir Dogs, not the least of which with Steve Buscemi and uh, the way right. he reacts to every situation. Like it's the neuroticism of him is the high wired extension of George Petey to me in certain respects. Mm. Um, but uh, before we begin with the production of this film and how we get to this legacy point that we're talking about, we do deal mainly in golden age Hollywood, early cinema, anything pre 1968. What is right. your exposure to this earlier period of cinema? How does your appreciation of it come through? Where does it get started? Well, as I may or may not have stated earlier, I'm a man of a certain age. So, um, 39 <laughs> and then some, I wish I were 39, but, um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, there was no cable back in the dark ages. So, and, and I grew up, uh, in Mobile, Alabama. So we had a CBS affiliate, an ABC affiliate, a, uh, what's next NBC affiliate and a, an incredibly hard to, to catch, uh, PBS affiliate. Mm. so so my uh and, and back then you know um the word is content now um they're scrambling for content mm -hmm. and so they were showing old movies all the time now the interesting thing is to look back now i mean um let's say let's say early 70s if i watch something from the 40s that's only 30 years old, right? Right. Now it's 
what, 80 years old? And and then I think of now someone watching something 30 years old. That's the early 90s. So it's it's a weird perspective. So having said that, there were there were movies on um every afternoon, the big show. Yeah. Uh, on on channel five back home. Mm-hmm. On but uh, uh, and then there was the late show on the CBS affiliate. So yep. there was an old movie every night. And then the ABC affiliate on Saturday nights at like 11 o'clock so when you're a little really little kid you have to stay up late mm-hmm. they they had a thing called popcorn theater it was on after uh, gulf coast wrestling we'd watch the wrestling mm-hmm. then we'd watch popcorn theater and they specialized in like wc fields and that's mm-hmm. where i first saw wc fields and may west and the marx brothers especially Ooh. uh charlie chan movie you know things like that right yeah. so they were like in that that 1930s vein to early 40s. Yeah, they're doing pre-code and even some post-code aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly. And um, uh, and then you know there'd be a Sunday afternoon show of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that that was my exposure. It was just like it was free TV. You put up with the commercials, and at a certain point, I was like, oh my god! Like you know, you stay up late one night for some reason when you're a little kid, and you catch something, and then you realize, oh, there's this thing that's on. Mm-hmm. And I can watch it every Saturday night or uh, the afternoon movie was usually like some sort of 1950s. Uh, you know, that was the first time I saw The Incredible Shrinking Man, for example, was on the afternoon movie. Right. That kind of thing. And But 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 especially that real kind of golden age pre-war stuff mm-hmm. was on Saturday nights. And, and that's what I remember. And then when I was a child, they did a re-release of... Um, was it Animal Crackers in theaters, like in yep. 73, 74? Steve Stolier was at the head of that. He formed the committee crack, the committee yeah. to re-release Animal Crackers. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so I went to the you know. theater and I was like, wow, I'm watching an old movie in a... Today I was. It was like it was. I was. I, I was okay. I'll give it up. I was around ten or so, ten or eleven. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I wanted to do was go see Animal, Animal Crackers, Crackers in a movie theater because we really didn't have. Um, uh, what do you call them? Um, you know where they show old movies, uh, like uh, like a TCM or anything like that. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like the theater. Uh, oh, New, Revival. Revival House. Yeah, Revival, Revival House. House. Yeah. And then I discovered uh, there were local college film programs and they Mm. were in the newspaper. And then I'm like, you know, begging my sister to take me to the local college because they were showing um, uh, The Great Dictator, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they'd have a mix of newer stuff and older stuff. But so there was a place to see them and they they were all over the place. And I mean, I guess it's kind of true now. There's there are movies all over the place, but they're the last 30, 40 years, which would have been similar to when I was a kid. So I can't really complain uh, and be an old man uh, screaming at a cloud. But but I I like when younger people I enjoy at my advanced age uh seeing young people really get into old movies yeah that makes me happy i think it, but i was i was i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, i was just yeah. enveloped in that and i was a at a, a nine or ten i was a crazy marx brothers head so mm-hmm. the best thing you could get me for my for christmas or my birthday was a marx brothers book 
Mm, yeah, so, that, so you so get like Wyaduck and... Um, I got Wyaduck. It's on the shelf behind me. I got the Marx Brothers scrapbook, mm-hmm. which as I thumbed through it, I think we may have talked about this once, I realized had some language there. Oh, A oh, 12-year-old oh. really should... There's some topics in there where he talks about... You know, using the F word and everything. I was like, wow, but it was great. You know, I was fucking um, the maid at one point. That's right. That's right. Right. <laughs> or or I met so-and-so. And boy, I wanted to fuck her. Mm-hmm. Wow. Marilyn Monroe. I wanted to fuck her. I was like, I thought this was about animal crackers it's, or this or the stateroom scene. That book's so, dedicated to his mother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, right. So, so it was those movies were everywhere mm-hmm. just because they were cheap to show and um there wasn't thank God for places like tcm now that's all i got to say yeah there and there was there was no like major major value apart from that play that they would have had for doing revivals it's why animal crackers took forever to like get out because there was a rights issue and so like universal mca who owned the rights mm-hmm. to the print we're like, well, it's not worth our money and time investing in scra- uh, descrambling these rights issues and then re-releasing the film. But the, right. but that college committee action run by Steve Stoller got them to be like, okay, there's a crowd, Groucho's on, in support of this crowd, so we'll we'll do this, we'll release it one one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and it did so well that then they extended it out. Like they they basically kind of like rolled it out a slow rollout to determine like whether or not it was worth the investment of putting it in any more theaters beyond those two. And interesting, I didn't know that part. Yeah, it's it's actually if you look at um raised eyebrows uh, Steve Stollier's book about being Groucho's assistant. Um, yeah, I'm he, dying to read that now. Yeah, yeah, the book does a lot in the beginning about establishing how he got into Groucho's house, and that is the big part of it. Um, but so then here's a, here's a question for you for your appreciation of these films and whatnot. What was your first Kubrick? Was it something like this or was it one of the more established ones? That's a good question. I, I, I So I, I'll tell you the first one I was exposed to. I don't know if I watched it, but I was exposed to it. One day is a, like a little kid, little kid, uh, seven, eight, whatever. So they would have the commercial for what was going to be on uh, – the late show that mm-hmm. night, yeah, uh, being Central Time, it would be ten thirty, and usually what they would do is they would show the trailer of the movie, yeah, and then they and then you know underneath it tonight at ten thirty on Channel Five, whatever. So this crazy thing comes on TV, and it was it was the trailer for Doctor Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Now, have you seen you've seen the trailer, right? With the ma- with the mad music and the cutting and the the woman's voice. Love and, oh my. the bomb. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> love the bomb. The guy's like, you know, Doctor Strangelove, or how I work. You know, yeah. learn to stop worrying. I love the bomb. And I'm like, what the hell is this? So I I don't remember actually watching it. Maybe I saw a scene. The first thing I truly remember seeing was 2001. There was a re-release in, I want to say, 75. Mm. And I had heard about it, and I was in the movies, and yada, yada, yada. So, and, and you know, I had heard of, you know, movie culture was so different back then. I mean, 
people stood by the proverbial water cooler and talked about the latest movie, right? right? Not, yeah. not in the same way they do now. It's, it's streaming shows or whatever, it's succession or whatever, right? And the, and the discourse is usually through social media more often than not, like on a, on a wider scale. Right, yeah. right. So like everybody knew about The Godfather. Everybody knew about The Exorcist. Everybody knew about whatever. So it was just infused in the culture, right? So anyway, I, I must have heard of this, whatever. I, and I'd heard it was a crazy far out movie. So I got my sister to take me to this, uh, it was a two screen theater, probably a much smaller screen than it should have. It should have been. It was in a, <laughs> it was a, it was a two screen theater in a strip mall. The same one I saw Jaws, like either a year later or before. Was there a young Christopher Nolan walking in there and going like, "Stop! This is not the right way to watch it. <laughs> this isn't seventy millimeter. <laughs> Stop <So>. the print." <laughs> and I remember going on a. It must have been an afternoon or early evening, and it's a you know kind of a long movie. It's one of the longer movies I'd seen it up to that point, mm-hmm. and. I was just like, what the hell was that? But although, <laughs> although being whatever I was, 12 or 13, I did, you know, because I was talking about it to my sister, and I was like, I do know one thing. Do you notice that every time they touched the monolith or that that wall, mm-hmm. they got a little bit smarter? I mean, at least I kind of like mm-hmm. was able to, there was some sort of structure there that I could follow. And I was just so proud of myself because I was a little boy and I kind of, you know, but there's so, but obviously there's so much going on so that yeah. i believe i have to say that's the first one the second one is i saw the shining about a month before it came out oh really because, yes because or maybe it, yeah it was a it was like a preview so um this particular summer so that's 1980 right the summer of yeah. so 7980 whatever it was uh the local radio station had this thing where Hey, we're going to be showing these movies. If you show up uh, it, for the seven o'clock, whatever showing, um, be one of the first 500 people in line, which I guess, or whatever the number was. Right. The I, no, I, held, I, right? We had the, we've had those, we had those like up to a certain point in college, but like in high school, I got to see the producers to remake early uh-huh, because of uh-huh. that like they'd offer it through the paper and you'd go in there wait in the line and if you got in you got in you know right yeah so this is yeah back in the day when you would actually queue up in line mm-hmm. for a movie which is so <laughs> weird which is so weird to think but anyway so so once again i don't have the driver's license my sister zanna anna please i want to go see this movie and I, I don't know if it was mostly because it was free <laughs> or well, I don't really remember what the motivation was other than maybe I'd heard of it mm-hmm. or I was putting 2000. I don't remember that. All I know is that I had to go see it. Yeah. And the guy comes out at the beginning and says, this is a pr- sneak preview. Um, uh, apparently there was another ending <laughs> and they cut it out for some reason. You know, he's like kind of talking through. And then I saw it. And uh, of course, it just blew my ass away. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm old enough at that point. I'm Mm 17-ish that, that, you know, when you're a teenager, stuff when you get exposed to when you're a teen, it just has a different, different, really different kind of resonance. It it shapes you in a lot of ways. Like that's how, that's how Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith like permeated my brain because it was like the right 
the right elixir at the right time, so to speak. Yeah, it's like when the duck hatches and it, the first thing it sees it, that's mama. Yeah. So it's that uh, you know they they it it, it imprints on you, right? Mm-hmm. So and I feel kind of bad. Like my my son is um, going to be twenty three this year, and I've raised him on old movies and you know he his favorite movie is two thousand one, right? Nice. So we saw that at the Museum of the Moving Image when he was like. 13 or something so he got to see like a 70 millimeter print that sort of thing anyway the point i'm getting to is that i feel a a little sad for like some kids today Mm -hmm. because i mean i watched the shining i was telling my son i was like and when the camera turns and you see red rum in the mirror (laughs) and you realize it's murder that's the first time I've seen, you know what I mean? That, yeah. that anybody's seen it or the here's Johnny thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's in the culture. It's in cartoons. It's everywhere. Yeah. Or I or I tell them about Star Wars. I was like, you don't understand. We <laughs> we didn't mind watching the Star Wars holiday special because we were starving for Star Wars. There was we we had to wait three years for a you know. It's that you you don't understand our denial for Phantom Menace. We wanted <laughs> another Star Wars so bad we were willing to accept so it. So <laughs> bad. So uh, but so that 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 had a big and I think that was the one where it clicked and i'm like this motherfucker is got something going here this this guy speaks to me it's something there's something going on here and you know like i'm a big um wells fan yeah i I mean the first time i saw citizen kane it was on tv Mm -hmm. but i didn't know the ending and everybody knows the ending now so yeah you know just to be lucky enough to see those kind of like pre-spoiler alert days so mm-hmm. um so anyway th- seeing the shining was like okay that's it i gotta i, I gotta watch this I'm, I'm looking out for whatever's next and then you know it, the rest of the i mean i saw full metal jacket on video mm-hmm. when the videotape came out and i saw um uh let's see oh i i don't really remember when i saw clockwork orange but i want to say i saw it in college for some reason Mm -hmm. i'm i'm pretty sure that's it but i might be wrong on that i might be wrong on that so So, was the killing later then was that like a uh so the killing is that might have been the the 90s or the 2000s Mm. so i'm an adult i'm in my 30s or 40s and it's it's one of those things where like you know there's some shit i need to catch up on i haven't I, i have not seen this and it, to be honest, it could have even been the, the teens. I'm, I don't really remember. Right. I do not really remember. Um, I, when did that? I don't remember when the Criterion one came out. It's been a couple of years. Blu-ray. Yeah, it's been so a it's couple been a of while. Years. I think I saw it before that. I'm pretty sure. But it's hard to pinpoint when I saw that. It's it. That's totally fine, because like my my technical first exposure to Kubrick is The Shining, because my sister I don't remember the auspices of this, but something she was doing for school when I was a little bit older and she was a little bit older took us to the Stanley Hotel out here in Colorado. And we got to see, like, they had copies of the book. There was, like, a scanned copy or two of the movie. We went through the hotel. There was a little bakery that sell red rum cookies, and I'm like, that's dark. And then <laughs> that's <laughs> really red rum. Wow. Yeah, but, well, they have their little cookies that say red rum on, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, eh, adorable. Um, but then I, I saw the murder. Film, murder. Yeah, nothing like a murder cookie to get I know, you to the, I know. Not even I know. a fucking hotel. And but we got like, but I watched the movie eventually, especially after reading the book. 
And I I was uh I was nonplussed by the movie because the book is a much more emotional like on the surface. Right. That's and what I understand. It's, yeah. it's far more it's far more enveloping in that sense. But my appreciation for The Shining has grown. I still don't find it to be the greatest horror film ever made as as posed by a lot of people. That's just my personal I think fear I might is go, I might go exorcist. <laughs> yeah. Fear is subjective, you know? Like that's a, that's yeah, the other thing. Yeah. Fear is subjective and like Yeah, yeah, totally. For me Halloween is is still the scariest thing I've ever seen cuz okay, I saw that yeah. at, I saw that at, at age of 10 in a basement with my dad. Uh, working on the exercise bike with the lights on and I was still freaked out. I'm still afraid of, I will always, when I get into my car, I always turn around to make sure Michael Myers (laughs) isn't in the back seat getting ready to slash Uh, my throat. Um, But The Shining grew for me and my love of, or my appreciation for Kubrick, not love, appreciation of Kubrick has grown after seeing Dr. Sleep because I was like, this is a miracle movie because it reconciles King and Kubrick at the same time. Interesting. Um, it's not like, I don't think it's a perfect beast, but it it handles a delicate high wire act of satisfying two fan groups without really breaking a sweat. Uh, it's it's one of those things where I was like, okay, so this is the, this is the, the 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 aftermath of what happens in a cold movie is is embracing warmth and that's what doctor sleep kind of provides okay. and so like from that perspective it made me think about the shining in a different way and in a respect it made me think of kubrick a different way but it's interesting to note with kubrick is that he is harked i think as like this weird mix of the older generation and the newer generation and the killing is one of those examples that sticks him firmly in the golden age of hollywood um, when he keeps going on with Pads of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Doctor Strangelove, he's still he's still in the Golden Age Hollywood mode up mm. to the point of change. And yeah. the killing is one of those instances of like he's not he doesn't get his full power yet. Like his it's he's still he's still Jedi training before he becomes a Jedi master, so to speak. And yeah, it's like one of those things where you're watching and you're it, 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 and you're like, okay. This is the guy to follow. Yeah. This is the guy. You, you know that there's something even better coming. Yeah. And uh, that was down the road. And that was exemplar from the moment of Kubrick being a young man, like going through his history, like this this kid who's enamored with photography gets in Look magazine for that picture of the guy the newsstand owner mourning, like just looking sullen on FDR's yep. death. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. about a way to like it really actually that story. I think tells a lot about Kubrick as a filmmaker and why he makes a lot of the visual choices he makes and why, frankly, dialogue in a Kubrick movie is not the thing I remember. I I barely remember the dialogue, unless it's The Shining. The Shining is, that's full of one-liners. Like, that's Jack Nicholson, (laughs) a Wendy. Like, that, that. but but the visuals are what I remember in a Kubrick movie. And okay. that, and I think that that's because he is a primarily visual filmmaker first and foremost. His concern is with his camera to a certain degree. Um, he, he, I think, I, he, agree. I think he toes the balance better than people might give him credit for, especially with looking at the killing. Um, but the way he gets through his first couple of films with Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. Like it's it's very much like going on the indie scene first before being really seen with your breakout film. And the way he gets into this, like 
we're going into production now. The big key figure that we have to draw upon this for historical knowledge is James Harris, who was right. was the producer of the film. He's he was still kicking around when they did the commentaries and like interviews for this film for yep. um for Criterion. And the way he plays it out, it's I was interesting to learn that he had met Kubrick before. Um, through, right, right. They yeah. were they they were friendly, I guess. Yeah, it's like friends. He's an acquaintance. It's just like, hey, how are you? Like, like not not nothing like major, but they run into each other years later. And Kubrick's like, you want to come see my new movie? It's called Killer's Kiss. He goes like, <laughs> yeah. interesting. Why is there a breeze all of a sudden around me? <laughs> he goes to see the movie, and he's like, this is impressive. I want to work with you. And you know, Kubrick going like. Sure, and then just turns to look at another camera, and um, like, <laughs> what kind of bolex can I can I fudge around with? Today? Right, right, right. Um, and so he, uh, they form Kubrick Harris, and they're like, "Great, we've got a company. Now what do we do?" <laughs> and, yeah, now what? Yeah, it's like that's uh, true, right? And they they're like, "What are we gonna do? right? What are we gonna do?" Just real quick, yeah. Just to divert it just for a moment. Sure. I don't know. It, let me know. Have you seen? Because uh, this is about we're talking about exposure to Kubrick. In the 90s, because uh, I'm fortunate to, love to live near the Museum of the Moving Image. So, um, and if when you come to New York one day, mm -hmm. I'll take you over there. Yeah, I've but, been to the uh, Museum of Broadcasting. That's how I watched okay. the first episode of Jack Benny's program ever, because that That's was the funny. only place yeah, to I love get that it. Place. Right, right. So, um, but I saw there his, the two early short films of his, uh, Day of the Fight and uh was it the, like the flying padre or something it's about a priest who flies an airplane around like in new mexico or arizona or something i haven't seen Nevada. them but the day of the fight footage is in the stanley Kubrick life and pictures documentary yeah um, Th those are really good short films and you know looking back you're like oh that's a still photographer who or he has the eye of a still photographer yes, right? yeah. especially day of the fight it's just a, a simple documentary about a you know, third-rate fighter. Uh, mm -hmm. What do they call them? Club fighters, I guess. Yeah. And and what his day was like, and his brother is his manager, and he exercises, and then he eats, and then he goes to the thing, and so those are very interesting uh, to see. Like you're watching, and you're like, God, this there's something going on here, and it, it's funny. It's like right, these movies are like it's all about potential. Yes. And I th and I think this one, I, I think they they each inch up a bit mm -hmm. and uh i just remember the first time seeing it i'm just like it's just so much fun mm. it's just such a fun movie that's how i feel so, with scorsese's shorts that are on criterion now like finally being able to see italian american and right uh, big shave. right yeah 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 those are good those mm -hmm. are good yeah, yeah i agree i agree but yeah they're they're at a point where they're like well what do we do yeah what do well, we make well, I can go to the bookstore when I'm off of work. Fine. Right, Ooh, look, right. another camera. And um, <laughs> <laughs> James goes to the bookstore, and he finds the novel Clean Break. Um, and he's like, this will make a good one. And then this is where it got even more interesting. Like, it's funny. Like, the, the stories on this kind of escalate in a strange way. So Kubrick sold Killer's Kiss to United Artists for 75 grand. And essentially had an open-ended deal, like or an open door policy with them, going like, "We'll buy anything you want. We're United Artists. We're not fiscally responsible." And um, so they basically got um, they got 
the rights to this book in an interesting way because our old pal Frank Sinatra, who has been talked yes. about on the show, he uh, he was interested in this book. He was like, ring a ding ding. I want to do a heist at a racetrack. Ring a ding ding. Uh, and uh, did he actually say ring a ding ding? I don't that? know. I'm just going off of Can Can where he goes ring a ding ding. <laughs> <laughs> um, he but he wanted the rights to the book. But the problem is, is that Frank Sinatra dragged his feet on a lot of properties, and he was hard to get a hold of because he's like, I'm too busy making sure that Khrushchev sees the production of Can Can later on. <laughs> like this, this uh, Frank Sinatra's reputation at this point had been re-solidified thanks to the Oscar win. He was a far bigger attraction than he had ever been. Um, like definitely breaking apart from his breakout time period in the forties. Um, that lull, I think really motivated him to become the performer he ended up becoming. Like he never wanted to go back to that again. Um, and, but as a result, you know, a lot of things coming down a pipeline, you're not necessarily paying attention to everything. Well, Harris was talking to the publishers and the people who held the rights to the book and said, well, uh, Sinatra's not returning our calls. We just get a voicemail that says, ring-a-ding-ding. You have reached Frank. No. Um, <laughs> so if you can get us a telegram guaranteeing $10,000, we'll give you the rights. So Harris gets the rights through that telegram and goes to UA, and UA is just like, but Frankie was supposed to do that movie, and they were like, not anymore. We've got the rights. And they go, Cool. Well, we'd love to see a script if you um, if you ever get one. So this open door deal was not really an open door. It was more like we want your next movie, but we want assurance. <laughs> and like it's 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 interesting because like I don't blame United Artists for like approaching it that way, so to speak, because it's like, look, we bought one film from the guy. That doesn't mean he's a guaranteed success right out the gate. Like right. you've got to they've got to have some form of assurance. So. Uh, Kubrick and Harris set about writing the script um, and they bring on Jim Thompson, uh, a pulp writer um, who wrote amongst other things. Um, uh, what, God damn it. I was, I was remembering that uh, uh, the killer inside or something like that. Like it's, it's the one that Casey Affleck ended up doing the killer inside me. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, he was a pulp writer that they brought in because he understood crime dialogue and crime novels. So he was able to translate better the dialogue while Kubrick worked on fashioning the rest of the screenplay, which I found interesting in the credits is that it says screenplay by Stanley Kubrick, dialogue by Jim Thompson. I rarely see that. Like that's usually an early Hollywood thing where you have like, Directed by so and so, but the dialogue director is James Whale. Like that's very weird. Yeah, I know. The first time I saw that, I was just like, "That's not a typical, at least of that era." Stanley, do you uh, not want to write the the words to the movie? No, <laughs> no, I don't understand humans. I, understand. I don't know how people speak. Is 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 a human a camera? No, I don't understand it. <laughs> just write, just write something snappy. Um, and uh, sure enough, the script is snappy enough for Univer or for United Artists to be like. Well, we want to do this, but then the the way they get the budget falls a little bit upon Sterling Hayden's involvement because Sterling Hayden's agent had read the script and said Sterling would love to do this. And Sterling Hayden at this point had been blacklisted. So he like he's dealing with that. He wants you want attention, obviously. So they go to United Artists and say, Well, we got Sterling Hayden, we really want him for the role. And United Artists kind of looks at them blankly and goes like but wouldn't you ha rather have Victor mature in like 16 to 18 months? 
And they were like, no, <laughs> like, we want to make a movie now. And so they were like, okay, well, we're only going to put up $200,000. So anything you uh, do above it, please remember that you owe us our two hundred grand first as part of this contract before any other money uh, invested is returned. So Harris astutely thought, well, we want to make a movie. We want to make our name a name for ourselves. This is worth the risk. Uh, so he took eighty grand that he had, and uh, then took uh, took a loan out from his father for fifty grand. Uh, which, in the grand scheme of borrowing parent money from your parents to make a movie, the way some filmmakers have told that story, it seems like less than others have invested. Like Wes Anderson, like getting like loans from his father seems different by comparison to this. Like it's like a, he Harris seemed to have more money available to him on his own uh, on the outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I found interesting. It's just like, oh, it's just literally just to cover the last gap based on what you projected as a budget. Right. Um, which, and so as a result, the final budget for this film was $330,000. Um, then they go about casting the film, which essentially involved Kubrick's knowledge of like, well, I, I don't understand humans, but I understand great character actors. Right. Um, so get Elisha Cook Jr., get Marie Windsor, uh, get 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 all those people in the background of most uh, crime films, and let's put them all together in a movie. And like having people like J.C. Flippin and uh, and Joe Sawyer and stuff like that, like these are faces you recognize. Totally, mm-hmm. totally. It's like you see these are faces you've seen on uh like every episode of bewitched in the 60s mm-hmm. uh and just like every tv movie in the 60s and 70s you know if you were growing up or, or watching reruns low budget horror movies in the case of low Elijah budget. cook jr yeah and yeah. on the late show and the afternoon movie and all that stuff totally totally recognizable yeah I, actually elisha cook jr is one that we've already talked about him before a little bit for the house on haunted hill on a previous episode um which by now will have already been released and like he's a guy who i love like leonard balton talked to him years later and said like did it bother you that you were mostly playing like side characters of these people who would die or heavies and whatnot and he's just like no, I kept working. <laughs> like, I just, yeah, right. Yeah, cash the check. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he seemed to enjoy having it because, like, I'll always remember him as Wilmer from um, uh, Maltese Falcon. That's 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 yes. that's Elisha yes. for me is just him staring blankly and Sydney Greenstreet just going like, "Oh yes, he is such a great pushover." Wilmer and I get along so well. Like that, <laughs> that that's that's Elisha Cook, or either that or a floating head in House on Haunted Hill. But yeah, I always think of. Um, uh Maltese Falcon. If you if you tell me Elijah Cook Jr. Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Every but time. this one though, oddly enough, it's interesting because his this role might be the most substantial role I've seen him in in a movie. Like That's in, a good point. In That's terms of point. him being a character, like in the in the big sleep he's a character, but like he comes in so late into the movie and it's and by that point you're like, "Well, I don't understand a lick of this movie to begin with." And then all of a sudden Wilmer's here, like because <laughs> The Big Sleep is the most indecipher indecipherable film of all time. Like you I dare you to tell me what the plot to that movie is. <laughs> oh um, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, but I mean, but yeah, he's like he is central to the film as a matter of fact, his relationship with lovable lovable Sherry Petey. Oh god. Uh, oh god. A, a, a regular loving housewife. <laughs> uh I'm, I'm sorry, is, I have to bring central to that. It is. Yeah. yeah, I have to bring this up. Sorry. I was looking on IMDb to to find jump off points for stories um for sure. production. 
And I found a section called director's trademarks. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I yeah. looked in there and there were and they were just like broken marriages. And I'm like, oh, that, I oh. have never <laughs> put that together before. <laughs> like, I've never put that together before with Kubrick. I'm like, yeah, those relationships do seem to be at a bad end. Yeah. Like the shining's yeah. like obviously. Yeah, the talk about, the yeah, talk about the shining. Yeah. yeah. But so like, yeah, I'm like, this is like the like the difference is is that in in if if the Shining were made with those two. Marie Windsor would be Jack Nicholson, and totally. Elisha Cook Jr. would be Wendy screaming in the snow. Totally. Um, but there is a element of the production of this film before we jump into the plot that we have to talk about, which is, and it's sort of a spoiler for the ending, but I want to talk about it now because it's an example of what we on the show are trying to do, which is we like looking into the press of the time, but we uh -huh. also like to clarify whether or not that there's a lot of hokum and whatnot. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. James Harris, when he recalled contributing to the script, his recollection was that the big contribution he made was to the ending, the original. That's my understanding too. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, no, no, you're no, no, you're fine. But like, you're what is what's the recollection you heard? Is the one from the Criterion, right? That uh, actually, I uh, I got it from the f latest 4K. So I listened to the uh, um, the commentary on that, and basically the. Original ending is the chop them up ending, mm -hmm. and and I I'm try I, I don't remember if it was if it was a code issue or a mm. um, UA issue or someone had an issue with it and they're like what do we do and he's like Eureka mm -hmm. and they was like your he actually came up with the ending yeah I'm, with I'm, the money so blowing ahead. in the in the suitcase yes yeah. yeah. Now, you were asking, like, I'm not sure what the issue was. Well, there might be some clarification in the form of a, a headline. Everybody's sensitive. <laughs> from, 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 Wait, is it, that's not from last week? No. That's not a headline from last week? No. Everybody's oh, sensitive. It is, yeah. And it's good to be aware of everybody's sensitivities, guys. There's no such thing as snowflakes. Wow. Everybody is sensitive about something. And that's True. fine. But I did find the title funny. Everybody's sensitive. It sounded so dismissive in the, in the writing of the headline. Um, but this is from Variety on November 9th, 1953. Uh, Harris Kubrick Pictures is revisiting the ending of its Bed of Fear, which that's another thing. The title of this film had another yep. and completely other uh, title in mind. I believe it was uh, Day of Violence. That's uh, right. That's the one I remember. Yeah. yeah. And then UA eventually came up with the killing. So I couldn't actually verify the timeline on this. But a lot of the articles um, listing the production as like active listed as bed of fear. And I'm like, that is that's not even close to a good title for no. this movie. Day of Violence or The Killing find I find way better like by comparison. Like the only other title that works for this is A Day at the Races, and that was already taken. <laughs> um, a, no, a, no, a new day at the races. Oh, if, if, I, if I, it was Groucho leading the heist oh, <laughs> instead of Sterling Hayden. <laughs> but I don't even like, um, I guess we're so used to the killing. I don't Day of violence, I guess. Okay, but. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of violence. That's that's for sure. Like In a day. Yeah. So. Yeah, fair enough. It's, it's literal. But. Sterling Hayden Starrer, Bed of Fear, 
uh, is revisiting its ending as a result uh, of a complaint from American Airlines. That's who it was. Yes, that's yeah. what they said. That's what the guy said. Yep. Original yes. finale had Hayden being cut to pieces by a plane's propeller as he chased down some $2 million in windblown cash around the airport. Airline protested that it might lead the public to think that airport safety regulations are laxly enforced. So the, yes. Indy, so the Indy changed the ending to have Hayden shot down by the cops, which does not happen in the movie. Uh, no. No. But um, I found that interesting because do you think Steven Spielberg heard that story and said, well, what if it's a Nazi being chopped up in a propeller? Right, what if it's right, in the desert? Right. <laughs> like, Because it's like that's the only image that comes to mind with somebody being chopped up by a plane is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, Well, well they mentioned uh, the guy who did the commentary on the, uh, the 4K, the Kino Lorber release, yep. mentioned that just like the year before or that same year there was another movie and it was so such an obscure fact that I didn't write it down, but uh, that had a demise of that sort. Really? Yeah, but in this case, as you just reminded me, it was American Airlines because mm -hmm. they're, I was like, when I'm watching, I'm like, wow, American Airlines is kind of feature prominently. It's not like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Western Airlines or something. It wasn't a generic name. They went with a real name. But so it seems like the, well, that might be the effort for realism on Kubrick's end. Yeah, yeah. But also it's like, I don't think that there was a much stringent regulation of product placement in a film as there is now. Like it's, it's different to acquire permission and there's like money usually involved. I doubt there was money involved in this. I, I I think they were just happy to be there or mm -hmm. whatever. And also like airline travel is, it's not new, but it's not as standardized as it is today. So like there's an effort of like, well, promotion isn't bad. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it was still very special right mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, and that's Burbank airport. I found out. Oh really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's actually Burbank airport. And the guy made the side, he goes, for you travelers out there, it's a much less uh, traveled and uh, a nicer place to come into L.A. than um, LAX. Yeah. But it's, that, it's still there. Yeah. It's still there. It's a Bob Hope airport uh, is what it's also known for, uh, known as in some in some instances. Oh, yeah. I, that, I found it. Oh, in, that one's Bob Hope? Okay. Yeah, Bob Hope. Yeah, that's, oh, okay. that's what I've always been told. I also know it as a place where I can't fly into cheaply to save my life. But because uh, <laughs> it, right. well. it is closer to places I'd like to be. But I'm not uh, okay. going to, I'm not spending that much money. I'll take the metro down to, down to Burbank that way. Um, I hear you. Or take North Hollywood and just walk. <laughs> but um, so the, that ending, that, the way they're changing things up though, like, I'm actually glad that they don't try to go with the ending to the novel because what we're about to talk about, the violence is inherent to the other characters. Sterling Hayden's character is like the, apart from one instance, is one of the least aggressive people in the movie. Like he's like consistently on an even yeah. ebb, you know? He really is. You're right. You're right. Even given the choice to be seduced by marie windsor mm -hmm. he's so devoted to his uh girlfriend yeah uh that he's just like get out of here yeah this girlfriend and the job which we can now talk about because we're there at the plot excellent we open up at the racetrack which a little production story on that is that in the in the harris interview they talked about how they actually 
cooperation with a racetrack in California was apparently piss poor. Uh, there was a verboten stance on filming at the racetrack, which I have no idea if that has to do with like filming people of irreputable, uh, irreputable character or of a matter of like some rich people don't want to be known as going to the racetrack. I have no idea. Bottom line is they can't. So they find one in San Francisco that will let them film. So they sent a B unit up there during production to film. And when they got the footage back, Stanley looked at it and went, this is fucking garbage. Ah, damn it. And so they brought in Alexander Singer, who was their friend that introduced Harris and Kubrick together, to go up there himself and shoot it according to Stan, what Stanley wanted for that opening credit sequence. So you right off the bat, he's asserting some form of control. Uh, he is definitely showing that he likes to have a, 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 a say in what goes on that frame from moment one to moment end. In everything, mm. everything. And then as an addendum to that, yeah, that, that second go round of filming, mm -hmm. they, uh, they were told don't film the racetrack or the, you know, a, a race don't film the horses running. And they're like, okay. And they <laughs> snuck it. They, sn they snuck the camera and they got kicked out mm. and they got, but when they got kicked out, they had enough footage yeah. for everything. Yeah. But they weren't supposed to film the, when you see the horses running, that was not supposed to be filmed. It reminds me of uh, the Hitchcock story for filming outside of the UN uh, for North by Northwest. They got yeah. the wide shot of him walking, of Cary Grant walking up to the UN, and they hit it off the other side of the street, and and nobody really stopped Cary Grant because they didn't they didn't notice the camera, and so it's just like ah, it's just Cary Grant going into the UN, same day right. as always. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, we had Barbara Stanwyck here last week. Um, ah, but, it's just Cary. Yeah, it's just Cary. Yeah, hey, you going to go see the Prime Minister of Uruguay? Say hi for me. <laughs> um, but so they we open up, and immediately we are thrust into dragnet territory because at exactly 345 on that saturday afternoon in the last week of september marvin unger was perhaps the only one among the hundred thousand people at the track who felt no thrill at the running of the fifth race he was totally disinterested in horse racing and held a lifelong contempt for gambling nevertheless he had a five dollar win bet on every horse in the fifth race he knew of course that this rather unique system of betting would more than likely result in a loss but he didn't care for after all, he thought, what would the loss of 20 or $30 mean in comparison to the vast sum of money ultimately at stake? This narrator is all over this movie. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I am I'm know a lot of people don't like him. Mm, I and, don't hate him. I don't hate him. But And it's uh, Art Gilmore mm -hmm. is the guy. And apparently at that time, he was the voice of like movie trailers. Oh, so he, he was, was the... Um... He was uh, the inner world. He was he the was Don the, Fontaine of his era. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, but I will say this. Because of the non-linear structure of the film, mm -hmm. I think, you know, like, well, there's some things where he's like, I, I don't like narrating something I can see on the screen anyway. Like, you know, he's walking up the stairs to go to the door. <laughs> it's like, I can see he's walking up the stairs. But... But because of that non-linear structure, mm -hmm. I think it does kind of bring the uh, the viewer back to what's going on. Because I had not seen this in a long time, mm -hmm. and there there was a point where I was like, "Okay, wait a minute, that happened uh, before." I'm seeing it. Uh, yes, 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 yes. So it kind of pulls you 
he's kind of guiding you. But yeah. I mean, but UA made them add that, right? I can't remember. That sounds like a UA decision because they didn't yeah. like the fact that this was a non-linear story to begin with. Um, but uh, but I will defend it. I will defend it. I won't defend it a hundred percent because some of it can be stripped away. Because I don't necessarily need him to tell me what someone is feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh, unless they are, unless they're the narrator that's someone in the story that's telling the story. But. I, I will defend it. I, I, I'm cool with it. Yeah, it's, cool I, it. I don't find it a problem. It's just, but his voice intrudes in places like, I, I'm easily startled as a human being. So when I suddenly hear his voice, I'm like, bah! <laughs> At three o'clock. <laughs> yeah, he was dead at 410. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I didn't need, for example, this will be the last day of his life or something yeah, like that. It, what there's a line the, yeah. in there. Yeah, it's like Timothy what, what might be the last day of his life. Yeah, that's the actually line. that was okay. I like that one that because there's a little bit, but there's something with Timothy Carey later when he's like, you know, and he will not wake up or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, I, I'll I'll defend it to a degree, but I get it why people don't like it's it. a it's I'm a cool. it's it's definitely like I think it's because of the temor of his voice. It reminded me of Dragnet so much, but it's, it is strong. It is strong, right? That's a trailer voice, right? You know, coming soon. Mm -hmm. And it's like I don't know if I want such a strong voice getting too intimate without these characters. Like, imagine if he's yeah. narrating the whole thing as like, yeah. and then George PD made love to his wife in a sweet tender right. way. <laughs> like, right, 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 <laughs> like right, right. Narrating their sex life and be like, please stop. Like this, this is not needed. Yeah, the black no. the blackouts were good enough for that. You're right? like, no, UA insisted on it. <laughs> but but I'm cool. Yeah, I'm cool. yeah. It's it's fine. It works actually because I feel like the nonlinear structure in this film is non traditional for this era, especially. So if you're gonna do that, and and that's the way Kubrick and Harris want to do it, then this assists that because then that way you get the best of both worlds. They get their nonlinear structure and UA, which still was at this point, a studio dedicated to an artist's vision. Like otherwise they're not going to pay mm -hmm. 75 grand for killer's kiss. They, right. They do it in a way that doesn't intrude on the story beyond its intent. Like it really doesn't affect the things on screen. It sets up, it establishes how this heist unfolds, which like an immediate thing, like, you can draw that to Reservoir Dogs, but I actually draw it to Jackie Brown and the way that they um, they he has those intertitle cards of like the heist, the practice run, and then like the heist for real. Right. And then they switch it back to the different perspectives. At that point in 97, they're able to do that without sugar feeding the or feeding the force feeding the audience an explanation. Like right. that's kind of like where the innovation that you can claim Tarantino has with the nineties films is that he's able to like do it without explaining something. He can just fuck with time and nobody gives a shit. Um, but in this instance, we are given the setup for this heist, which deals with the passing along of an address. Um, the same address being this, the detail in these shots of him, like of them passing around the address and then like destroying or like, like doing whatever they need to do with it. And you see the different players involved without even fully meeting them right away. Like, so we already know that Mickey, the bartender is a part of this. We know that Marvin is a setup guy. We know that George PD is the track cashier. We know that the people that work at the track are involved in this without saying a word. Right. It's, it's pure cinema storytelling at its finest. And in that respect, we are able to cut out a lot of the middleman. This movie is only an hour and 28 minutes. 
And it, and it moves like a clip because they don't waste time over explaining something. Yeah, it's so lean. It's so lean. That's what I love about it. It's so lean. Yeah. And like if we we I find it interesting that like the net, the scene following that is Randy Kennan, the police officer, talking to his loan shark. And right, right. It, it is there to establish, I feel, from a Golden Age Hollywood perspective of why would a cop go bad? It has nothing to do with his character. It has everything to do with code uh, code adherence, going like, this is why this cop is doing this. Yes, yes. And, and so we are clearly establishing that he is a bad, bad cop. And so like, even though you don't see his fate, it's clear to understand that this man will fall by the end because he's dirty and into a loan shark. Like that, I think that that's a, like a very efficient way of talking about a character. And the same thing happens with, with, with um, O'Reilly because he's, his wife is invalid essentially. And right. they do it through very small, very brief scenes. Like you would talk in a conversation as opposed yep. to like, like having a whole scene with the wife, like bearing her soul. Like, it's just like, you know, I'm going to work. Okay. I'll have mom fix you supper at, so and so time. So and that syringe. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, my eye is drawn to that syringe <laughs> on the on the nightstand, and and um, for a second there, I'm like, well, maybe she has a a habit that she can't break, but she's obviously very just very ill. Yeah. Right. Well, well you've I think Mike Mike is just like no 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 my my wife's a heroin addict my wife is Sherlock <laughs> Holmes <Yeah>. like <laughs> <laughs> like. It's, you know, until the man with the golden arm, I don't think you're talking about that as out loud as you'd like to. No, but I mean, I, she was, I mean, eventually you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, but you're right. It's like they don't, they establish why people need the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Johnny, why are they doing this? Yeah. Johnny Clay's is pretty obvious from the get go. He's just gotten out of prison um, yep. and he wants something that can set him up for life. Um, he is very devoted to his girlfriend and his girlfriend is very devoted to Johnny. Oh my God. The amount of like, uh, well, God, it's, I don't, this hero worship. She's I like the way like, I've, I've done everything you wanted ever since we were kids, ever since we were kids that, he, that got me. Yeah. And like, and the, the line that like struck me as like, I'm not that pretty and I'm not that yes. smart. Yes. <laughs> don't leave me alone. And I'm like. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's it. I was going to bring that was the first thing I was going to bring that up today. I was like, like, like she is calling gray. Damn it. Like, I'm sorry. You're calling gray that there is no way that that line is believable. I, I'm sorry. Like, I, 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 I'm not buying that. But at the same point, though, her her behavior is very codependent. Um, yeah, it speaks to her. I, I bet it speaks to her. Um feelings of insufficiency mm -hmm. uh because who knows what's going on at home if she's even at, at home but she she obviously doesn't feel pretty she's a more like she's a more well-rounded and it's weird because she's only in a couple scenes <laughs> I she, know, she's I know. more well-rounded than most mall characters in early gangster films that's not to denigrate those characters or those performances it's just that like the way they're talking about her is different yeah. Like yeah, they establish yeah. the insecurity in a way that feels more honest than 
you know, showing a guy shoving a girl around, you know, like right, it's right. very different. And, and, and Johnny's not incredibly secure with his own like history. Like he is just like a, the, the biggest mistake that I'd made was, uh, just shooting for peanuts beforehand, you know, like right. he hasn't gone for the big score. Um, and so, you know, and that's when we start cutting to other people. Like I said, we get, we get Mike O'Reilly entering his house and you kind of get an instant image of his ill wife and the, the financial woes that he's under for this. Um, and Mike is a, is a interesting side character because he's such, he's so sullen, like in the moments where he is at home and like, you're feeling the pain. And I think that the film does a good job at, more or less establishing good reasons why people need the money as well as the bad reasons. Like sure. E- each character, sure. each character is defined in a camp and they do a good job at expressing like their needs for the money without, w- without going into a whole Reddit head about it, man. Like it's like, obviously the cop needs the money for the, for the loan shark and Mike needs the money for this. George Petey, on the other hand, needs money because he made promises early on in his marriage that, <laughs> Yeah, that's that's more of an existential thing. Like the others, they have mm-hmm. real needs, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. there's medical mm-hmm. medical needs. The other is, well, you're a degenerate gambler. You you, you uh, got I'll, those I'll, needs. Although that loan shark is incredibly polite. <laughs> like, yes. he works on yes. a finance plan for him. <laughs> yes, it's like the opposite of everything I see in Rocky, where he's just like, I got to go over and break somebody's bones while I'm pretending to be, while I'm trying to be a boxer, or like the Irishman not too long ago, where like he, I love because I love that scene where De Niro like takes the guy's word at first and goes like his mother's right. been dying for the last five years. Yeah, <laughs> like, right, right. Gets right, him right. a gun and they take him back into the house. This guy though is just like. No, no, no. We can work it out to a thousand dollars, and then just you know, you pay it off in installments, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, we just need a credit rating report. <laughs> it's like, just what? What are you doing? <laughs> fun, fun fact. Yeah, that actor is Jay Adler. Mm-hmm. His father. He comes from a theatrical family. His father was big in the Yiddish theater. Mm. He had another brother that was an actor, and his sister was Stella Adler. <gasps> The ultimate. <laughs> so that's Stella Adler's brother. Apparently, he was kind of the black sheep of the family. Oh. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Um, but uh, yeah, so he comes from that family, which I th- I found really, really interesting. Interesting, though, that he, 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 he worked as he hoofed around Hollywood pretty well. I mean, he's in the, yeah. he's in a previous episode as a party guest in The Bad and the Beautiful um is he really yeah he's a he's a party guest in there there's another cameo that's listed in here which i don't fully believe because i can't see him i know who you're gonna say yeah well well, oh well um, oh well you want to save that yeah well we'll we'll save it for like racetrack scenes where we're like seeing a big crowd i know exactly who you're i'm Mm -hmm. fully prepared to talk about that. yeah we'll talk about it but uh in the meantime though why don't we meet george Petey and his wife sherry um we are introduced to them in one of the many tracking shots in this film now oh my I, god now I'll, I'll sidestep for a second to just point out that the dp on this film is lucian ballard and lucian had an established career he was married to merle oberon he right. was a, a hollywood established cinematographer stanley uh stanley uh kubrick had shot his own films up to that point and so those two voices did not get along in a room and no. one of my favorite <clears throat> stories out of this production is Harris talking about this in the life and pictures is that there was a setup for a shot where the change of perspective would happen. 
And I think it's actually the scene later where uh, Marie gets uh, Marie Windsor gets punched out. But, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they they yeah. change perspective, um, and so Stanley wanted a twenty five millimeter lens on this setup for the tracking shot, and Lucian set it up for a different outlay uh, and blocking and put a fifty on there because it makes life easier as a DP to use a fifty. Um, same stays true today. And um, he brought up the change in perspective and Lucian went like, well, that doesn't fucking matter. And uh, so uh, Stanley Kubrick apparently quietly and calmly said, put that fucking camera back and don't do that again. And it never happened again. But consequently, Lucian would not attend dailies because he could not stand being bossed around and bullied by this young Stanley boy. So... Shots like this, where we are introduced to George Petey and his wife, <clears throat> these movement shots are a Kubrick staple and must have been frustrating to Lucian Ballard. Like, because they're constant throughout this movie. And I like this one in particular because it stays on them as a couple for so long in the scene. Yes. It's a long, it's, I, when I viewed it the second time last night, I'm like, there, there are more than one long takes mm -hmm. in this uh movie and that's that's certainly one of them and this is one of the most accessible forms of something that kubrick would do for years um like these long long shots in in the case of here it's not a visually long shot it's a two shot but it's it's just standing there and yeah and he the movement that he brings to it is whether it's sherry moving around or george entering it 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 kind of like flows with the mundanity of a marriage stuck in a rut. Like it's just, it's going through the motions quite literally. And I kind of appreciate that he lends visual acumen to something that might otherwise just be like, put the camera here. Okay. Cut. Now we'll move for coverage. Like right, right. coverage is great, but like if you can efficiently get your point across in one shot, that's incredible filmmaking right there. Because you're going back and forth because it's fun to go to his face. You're doing it, not the director. Yeah. And then her face, and she is such a ball buster. Mm -hmm. Dear Lord. Yeah. She is so cruel to him, and he's just... he. But you know I'd a, do anything for you. <laughs> yeah, right, sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you 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 know what I do you know I'd do anything for you. You yeah, you know, like you know what I would do if another man, blah blah blah. This is like yeah. George, like like you kind of want like I'm not encouraging this because Jack Torrance is a piece of shit, but you yeah. almost want Jack Torrance to go and talk to George Petey and be like, "Listen, you don't understand. She's not a supportive <laughs> partner. That's why you've got to break <laughs> off this marriage, George." <laughs> now here's an axe. <laughs> or, or you know, hey, no, this is the 21st century. We're gonna go a little woke here. What you're gonna do is go to a therapy <laughs> session. All right, you're gonna talk to a counselor. <laughs> Imagine them in a marriage counselor's office, dear lord. Yeah, and also imagine a woke Jack Torrance. That's that's an odd. That's an odd thing that I don't know if will ever work ever ever again outside of this. I'm gonna room. have to muse on that. One. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Wendy, you're right. I have been very much ignoring <laughs> you and the kid. So I'm gonna put down my writing book, and we're gonna have family time, and I'm gonna give you attention. <laughs> That's right. Let's. Here's a box of Scrabble. <laughs> Let's play sorry. Nope. That way we can get our feelings out on the open every time we make a move against each other. Oh Jesus. <laughs> um. But uh. So yeah. It really boils down to Sherry 
was was made lavish promises of um upon marrying George of like I'm gonna get you all the things you deserve money and jewels and diamonds and yachts and blah 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 and Sherry is five years into this marriage and she has completely lost any interest in George until he mentions that all those things are about to change because he's about to get money but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when she's just like, tell me more, tell me more. Like, where are you going to get that money? And he goes, I can't tell you. Well, maybe just a little bit. And he starts telling her a little bit about the heist that is planned and even tells her where he's going to go that night, which bad move, George, bad move. Yeah. Um, and then she takes that to her lover, Val. Uh, and uh, Val is a skis ball uh, uh, in on on the surface and just all, all round. Um, you're like I went to the movies, whatever. Like why, you, why <laughs> right. you trying to, why, why what are you, you talking about? Why are you ball busting me the way you ball bust the wimp over there? <laughs> like just it's like it's really weird. It's just like Sherry cannot find any kind of middle ground for herself at all. It's got to be one extreme or the other, I guess. Totally. Yeah, and so she and him cook up the the dreams of what would happen if they got a hold of that money and Val's like you need to find out more more about it and then we 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 move into the meeting of everybody there and uh it, it really is breaking down from a procedural standpoint I I would say what the heist is going to be and my right. first immediate connective point to this when I saw it was this is like when they're having the meeting in Ocean's Eleven going over how the heist is going to happen. Well, um, it's like a scene you've seen a million times, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's the fun part. We're going to do this. Here's the thing. And then you, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. At mm -hmm. 5 o'clock, I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to do this. And interestingly, I didn't. I never really noticed it until I watched it again last night. But uh, Johnny Clay is really the only criminal. Yes. Yes. Right? So mm -hmm. they're all just like schmoes that, you know, like they, they have no criminal past. No. So no one's going to be necessarily tailing them. They, they're not known criminals, mm -hmm. but they all they all need money so badly that they're willing to perform a crime. Yes. And that had not really sunk in until I watched it. It's like, no, he's, he's not even a crooked cop per se. Mm -hmm. He's just in a lot of debt. Yes. Yeah. He's you he's know. he's desperate. You are watching desperate men. And like George Exactly. You know, like we can immediately pinpoint a George PD into a Walter Neff esque category category like double indemnity. And I think that this is what makes it a noir instead of a gangster film per se. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. It has to do with the lives of people and not criminal stereotypes strictly. Even right. even Johnny is not really treated as a criminal stereotype. It's pretty realistic. It's like guy gets out, does the same thing he did before. He's right. probably going to go back. Like the idea of the repeat offender, which isn't like every criminal that exists, but it's a, it's a factor. And I think that right. Kubrick and Thompson are dealing with a post a post war aesthetic of these stereotypes don't necessarily hold water anymore, right. and. I mean, in a sense, like looking at these men of normal repute going after money, 
Well, I mean, like that's not strictly what a what a Scorsese movie does. But think of people like uh, like Howie who run the wig store, or Maury who run the wig store. Right, right. Like, he wants a piece. He's just he he's just, just a, a guy who owns a wig store, and yet he also just comes up with like, or the night guard, the night guard that when they do the heist in the truck. At the beginning of Goodfellas. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He's just like, right. you're looking at the Night Watchman. Like that. Right, right. <laughs> that, that's that right. guy. That's so like right. that's, those are examples of just like these normal, normal everyday people caught up in a heist. And they're all very supportive. I, I'm so shocked by the supportiveness amid the criminals in this movie. <laughs> like it's just like everybody's in some kind of weird support group with each other going like, no, 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 Marvin, you you bring a lot to the group. You're doing yeah. great, buddy. <laughs> like, yeah. just, oh, like, let me talk about Marvin for a second. Yes. Just one thing I noticed mm-hmm. in this viewing that I not had not noticed. First of all, he's another one of those actors I've seen in a million mm-hmm. TV shows and whatnot. The gay subtext. Mm. I detected a He comes in when he first walks in on uh, uh, Johnny and his girlfriend, Faye. Yeah. And the way, the way he treats him and he's like, whatever you want, Johnny, and that sort of thing. <laughs> so that was like a little bit of a... You know, it's, like it, a thing, but there's a scene later on. We'll get to it. Right. But but there's there's more behind Marvin's, uh, like everybody wants money. Mm-hmm. I think he wants more than money. I think he wants something more with Johnny. Yeah. And that'll, that will become evident a little bit later on in the movie. The, but I, that's something I only noticed on this viewing. It may not be a thing, but it certainly seemed th- upon this viewing. The the subtext that you're alluding to is no different from the subtext that we discussed previously with Jay Rickard on Rebel Without a Cause, where- Oh, the, yeah, that well, that's got a lot of that. Y- yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but we even had the debate of like how much of this is projected versus reality in certain respects. And, I agree. And this one I feel it's similar to um the to the to the Milo character or the uh, the the the, uh, the Salminio the, the Salminio uh, character, sorry. I'm, th- I'm thinking of uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> um Dr. Milo, he gets unfortunately killed by the uh, by the random gorilla. Um but uh <laughs> uh he um Salminio's character in Rebel Without a Cause is very puppy dog running around chasing after yes. James Dean. JC Flippin as Marvin is doing similar attitudes. However, there is the line near the, near There's that other certain scene. certain exchange. There's a certain exchange and he also does something that he's not supposed to do. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. But they go over the plot. Um, and the key point of the plot or the, the plot of the heist is that Johnny is going to hire two people on the outside who are not going to be a part of the heist in any way uh, to create the distractions that will allow the heist to happen. Uh, this, this, the, the, the takeaway will be $7,500 coming out of Marvin's pocket in order to pay these criminal professionals. And Johnny gives the assurance of like, they're not going to, they're not going to be a part of the take because they're not going to know about the scam, the heist. Like I'm only telling them to do a job. They're, they're professionals. They'll do their job. And, as they're going over this plot, there's a bunch of knocking around and fumbling at the door. So uh, we get that we get a nice long tracking shot that made Lucian pissed. Uh, and uh, uh, here somebody. <laughs> I love those, out. by the way. Oh yeah, I love those because mm-hmm. it gives a sense of um, of uh, uh, like a peeping tom. Yeah, 
because it's very three-dimensional. It's not just a tracking shot. It goes through plants and shelving. And they built and, and they built the sets to allow that open-endedness. Right. So it's like it's almost weird that like Lucian had a problem with a lot of these because it's like most of your sets are built to do this anyway. Like you're not yeah. dealing with a four-wall scenario here. Like it they had studio space to an extent. And that shot in particular is interesting because we also don't we don't see the impact. We don't see her we see him punching Marie Windsor out. Um, but right, we get, right, yeah, right. we get the impact of it though because we see her there and the they immediately go like they go from support group to like these are the criminals I know and love. What you what the fuck's going on? What's the story, George? And George is like really trying to downplay it. Like she probably thought I was with another woman because everybody knows I get all the ladies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like You're really such a stud. Yeah. Oh, Elijah Cook Jr. Come on, come on. We'd all we'd all go there if we had to. <laughs> um, no, it's it's really like it's kind of cool watching him try to downplay something where the other guys are going like bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, please. So they take him out while Johnny interrogates uh, Sherry. Um, to which uh, I, I did like the whole, um, the exchange between them, but the first line before is like, nah, I don't think we're going to have to kill her. Just slap her face into some hamburger meat. Hamburger meat. I love that line. Uh, this is like, oh my God, no. That's Jim Thompson, right? Oh, that's yeah, Jim that's Thompson. Jim Thompson right there. Just slap her into some hamburger meat. Like take her, face. take her to PK. <laughs> but, um, they go through their little exchange and he sniffs something right from the get go. It's like, all right, what the fuck are you doing here? And she's, and she's just like, I, yeah, I, I thought George was with another woman. And it's just like, that bullshit story? Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck with we, me. We all, we all know that you're too good for him. <laughs> like, that, like that, or like the, the, the uh, he says the line. You'd care if he was playing another dame. That would bother you. <laughs> you don't understand me, Johnny. You don't know me very well. I know you like a book. You're a no good nosy little tramp. You'd sell out your own mother for a piece of fudge, but you're smart along with it. That's the line. You'd sell out your own mother for a piece of fudge. fudge. Yeah. That's awesome. That's that's amazing. That that is Jim Thompson's like dialogue flourish. Like makes me want to read some of his novels now to just be like, I mean, I wonder how many more like fanciful lines I'm gonna get each time. Right. Um, and uh but yeah, they uh he basically gives the whole thing of just like you better butt out of this and just kind of accept that you're going to come into a lot of money and what you do afterwards, whether it's fucking over my new pal George or not, is just totally up to you. And this is like sort of cross cut with George being taken outside and the establishment that Val and one of his compatriots uh, in in low lifehood are staking out the place, essentially. Um, so they're already right. aware of at least one of the meetup places. They don't know what where else they'll be. They just know that this is one of the established spots. And it cuts to George and Shelly back at home. Um, she uh, she very much stands up for these criminals and not for her husband being tossed around. Uh, going like, well, you have to. I, I totally understand why they why they socked me on the jaw, George. Like they, <laughs> yes. they had to keep their business a secret. And it's all good. Yeah, it's and he's good. just like, I don't know if I'm gonna do this. And then she jumps up, going like, But you have to. Like you really have to. I need money <laughs> for my non for my lover. Wink. <laughs> like, uh, and then I love how she kind of devolves it into like 
becoming like submissive almost like the the domesticated wife almost to a degree yes as a, yes as a ploy yes. and then going like yeah, like uh, you love me don't you and she's like of course i do and then they just go in for love making and we fade out because it's the 50s um which which good because i don't need to see that interaction <laughs> happening <laughs> well that reminds me of another line er- earlier when we first meet uh sherry and george Mm-hmm. It's like we're having steak for dinner. We're having a steak dinner. Oh, uh, where is it? Well, it's just stay. It just ain't here. Yeah, you got to go down to the store and buy it. It's like she sent him to fucking Rouse for a steak <laughs> for a steak dinner that she's not even gonna make for him. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. just like it's crazy. Yeah, it's like the and pot- I, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no, I was gonna say like the potatoes are in the fridge. You've got to get them out of That's- there, George. <laughs> <laughs> and this brings us to another point that i noticed there's a lot of fucking in this movie oh yeah yeah so so it opens with johnny and faye fucking yeah and then there's i guess sherry and val yes and then there's sherry (laughs) and george Mm -hmm. and uh wait i thought there was one marvin and johnny i remember that scene too (laughs) (laughs) but it it was like much more than i realized yeah and and um uh yeah so i mean so we're at the part so right so this was led into the part because he i guess uh so right it reminded the george Marie, a George and Sherry. I keep wanting to call Marie Windsor Marie. Yeah. A George and Sherry, like she's seducing him. And as I'm watching that, I'm like, there's so much sex in this movie. Mm-hmm. So much blackout sex, people blacking out. Yeah. So, and she, I think she has sex with Val and George on the same day, if I'm not mistaken, right? She, she does, does that make sense? Yeah. It does. So she, this is just a crazy sex movie. Yeah. There's a lot of, there, there's a lot of boundary pushing, but they still have the cover of, like okay we'll fade out the camera like yeah but at this point they're also allowing people on the bed together in certain respects like the way they're framed yeah the way george and sherry are framed feels way more modern than i would have expected out of like the thin man in 34 like yeah yeah no 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 you're right yeah yeah they're he's actually he has the he probably has the foot on the floor yes yeah but um but it's very. It, it, I didn't even think of that till now. It it looked like she, he was fully, you know, in there with her. Yeah, I mean, like I th- I think that the 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 point of turn for this is around this period because how else would Hitchcock have gotten away with as much as he did in the beginning of Psycho, where they are mm. where they are on the bed. And like, right. you know, they are on the bed. There's no two ways about it. Right, and, and I know right. that the Breen office wanted to refilm that and he set the whole thing up and they never showed up because they called the bluff and they were just like, all right, that's a wrap. Yeah, like, <laughs> not to do anything. Yeah, no, those, the, the, those wimps didn't show up. I guess they don't really care about saving America's soul. <laughs> so, um, but you're right. There is a lot of that. And, in, and on top of that, there's an, uh, the amount of violence and talk of violence in this film is incredibly poignant. We can, and we're going to get to it because we start moving into Johnny going to the Academy of Chess and Checkers to right. acquire a wrestler because that is the first place I think of when I think of wrestling is the Chess and Checkers Academy. Uh, I agree, especially those Scrabble 
uh, oh. roughs. Oh yeah, they're 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 mean motherfuckers. You do not. You know that's why The Rock is as tough as he was is because he was a Scrabble player. A big old hey, that wonderful shot when he comes in the door mm-hmm. and you see it says the American or whatever, the Academy of Chess and Checkers. And my first thought is that's on the wrong side of the door. And as the camera pulls back, you realize it was through a mirror mm-hmm. Yeah. so that you can read the words. It's just so smart. Mm-hmm. I think just uh, it was very clever. That's that's the photographer in Kubrick being like, and, and we can attribute that to him and not Lucian because that is his brain at work. Like, I'm sure. That's kind of I'm like sure. the amazing part of the killing is that you can watch a director pretty unfiltered. Uh, in the golden age of Hollywood and how they work. Like, uh, a similar trick is done with the shadow of the Sam Spade, uh, uh, the Spade and Archer sign in Maltese. Yes, you're right. But that, and and that's a a situation where Houston isn't like known for his visual acumen the same way as others. But like, that's a choice. That's definitely a choice. Totally. But it's not like, it's not riddled throughout the entire film the same way as it is in The Killing. Um, right. And they, there's definitely a and also just like the idea of hiring character actors and side performers like this. Like my first thought when like I heard when I was when I read about this film in, in college and be like, I want to watch this. I didn't realize it was uh, Cola Corarini. Cor- I'm like, well, maybe they got a wrestler like like uh, like Tor Johnson or something like that to do this role, which I was just like, nah, he was too busy making fr- films with his friend Eddie. So. <laughs> Uh, well, were you were you familiar with him as a wrestler? No, no, but like, oh, but, oh. but I was like, I know that wrestling was popular in the fifties as a TV yep. staple, and my first go to is always always going to be George Tor Johnson, no matter what. Right. So I'm like, right, well, hey, right, that's right. the only wrestler that I know. Like, it's either that or Gorgeous George. Like, who are we going to get here? Like that that would be. It would have been interesting if Tor Johnson played the role and did. Given how he delivers dialogue in Plan 9 from Outer Space, it would be interesting to see him try to attempt this dialogue in The Killing because Maurice is such an interesting character. Wow. I mean, he apparently they were friends mm-hmm. and they played chess in New York together. Yeah. So, uh, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I need to watch this scene again, and I still haven't put on the closed captioning because mm. it's very difficult to, at times to know what he's saying. Yeah, I, uh, I, I lo- here's a line that I love. Um, uh, is, you have my sympathies then. You have not yet learned that in this life you have to be like everyone else, the perfect mediocrity, no better, no worse. Individuality is a monster, and it must be strangled in its cradle to make our friends feel comfortable. You know, I often thought that the gangster and the artist are the same in the eyes of the masses. They are admired and hero-worshipped, but there is always present underlying wish to see them destroyed at the peak of their glory. Is Maurice writing a thesis about Scorsese movies before they happen? What the fuck? (laughs) It's like Mongo in Blazing Saddles, you know? (laughs) Mongo Mongo just a pawn in Game of Life. Maurice, do you have your son around? Yes. Alex Karras, come over here. (laughs) But but I got to tell you, that's the first time I've heard that whole thing distinctly because I can never get the entirety of what he said yet mm-hmm. it's it's the it's the georgian accent he's coming from a different yeah from yeah. that different section of the world and actually sadly 
his um one of his last visits to the Chess and Checkers Club um met with him being beaten yes. by a group of hoodlums and yes. dying as a result. It's just like that's just so sad to read. Like I don't I don't like I don't like the thought of that. Like going like all right, I'm going to a movie and then he tried to take out. him on too. He yeah. tried to take him on. Yeah, but they were. That he was, was like seven. That would have been seven. That would have been yeah. He was like a, well, he died at seventy seven. So yeah, he would have been seventy seven at yeah. the time. That's like that's kind of how I wanted the wrestler to end. Is that he goes to a checker academy and <laughs> <laughs> gets beat, beaten up by all of his coworkers from the grocery store. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it certainly would fit uh, Darren Ar- Darren Aronofsky's mold than than what the movie ended up being, which is a, it's a nice surprise. But um, so he go he gets Maurice to create a distraction at the bar. Then he goes to Nikki. And oh, my God, that shot of the target practice and then the pan up. Yes. How modern is that? How modern is that shot? Oh, my God. There's another shot later on that when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, I just saw this in a movie yesterday. You know what I mean? Like, but Mm -hmm. uh, but but. Timothy Carey. <laughs> Let's talk about Timothy Carey for a minute. Let's do, please. With with clenched teeth. <laughs> the first time I ever encountered him was as a kid in Bleach Blanket Bingo. Now, are you? I'm a bit of a. I have a really soft spot in my heart for the Beach Party movies. I've never and seen Beach Blanket Bingo. I've seen that's like, like I've seen th- films in it of its ilk. That's the big one. That's the big like that's the Beach Party movie. Mm. But uh, he was in that, and he was like going around going, "All right, believe." That was his line, like, "Hey, believe whatever you say, believe." <laughs> but he is a very, very interesting character in person. Yeah, he's I, a fucking crazy man. I, I. There's a there was a snippet that I found, which would have been amazing if he got him and probably less stressful, is that Quentin wanted him for Reservoir Dogs as Joe. I had heard that, and heard instead that well. he got a fucking madman named Lawrence Tierney. Yeah, <laughs> a fucking yeah. unstable human being who somehow found his way into Seinfeld and Star Trek afterward. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Damn it. That's right. Oh, his, his Star Trek episode is strange. Like I'm, I keep wondering, I'm like, he's going to kill the enterprise crew. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to kill them with a look. Um, but, um, and then also I just love him berating George. Like what, you know, no one's taking my, my, my <laughs> girl right. Elaine out with a coat like that. <laughs> you have to put it on. That's ruins that's the leather. <laughs> With a cult like that. Yeah. Oh, and at the very end when he's singing Master of the House, keep right. <laughs> <laughs> Um now the uh Timothy Carey though, his his role brings such a realism to like I attribute this to something that the gangster movies picked up on going forward because of what he does at the track and how he interacts with the gatekeep. Um, but here he is genuinely concerned about the proposal that Johnny is giving going like, well, you want me to shoot a horse? Won't I get in trouble for that? <laughs> and I love Johnny's answer though. He's like, uh, you know, it's not a person, so it's not murder. Maybe it's shooting horses out of season. Said, yeah. So what if you get picked up? What have you done? You shot a horse. 
It isn't the it isn't first degree murder. In fact, it isn't even murder. In fact, I don't know what it is. But the chances are you'd be getting uh, char- charges on inciting a riot or shooting horses out of season or something like that. Well, th- you know that's totally pre. I mean, we have a lot more laws on the books today because I was watching and going, well, today you would totally be imprisoned for shooting a horse. But oh, back yeah. then, you know, uh, we- shooting horses out of season. But he's just such a weird, interesting character. I mean, he he got fired off of um, Paths of Glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think there's scenes where, like, when he's about to get executed, like he's facing the wall. That's another guy because he got fired. He 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 went off on someone. I forgot what it was, but you see, he's got such a weird energy about him. I saw that he was in Cassavetti's movies. Do you think that they got along? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I don't know. As long as he got to, I guess, as long as he got to improvise, right? Maybe, I'm, I'm going to have to look that up. I maybe, didn't know that. Maybe they both puffed out their artistic chests and had a battle of uh, to see who was the who was the alpha. In that yeah, situation. well, or or he just like acquiesced to the master, you know? <laughs> he was like, whatever, whatever you say, booby. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to mess with Cassavetes. That just seems like a fight not worth having. <laughs> like, but 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 he's an odd bird, right? And from mm-hmm. the moment you meet him you're like what's up with this guy and it's obviously he'd be a guy who'd be shooting stuff he looks like he's about to go to a bell tower and do some terrible things yes. in texas yes. like that's that's what he looks like or a yes. book depository like this is a guy who looks absolutely dreadful right and, and his sharpshooter skills do 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 nothing but double down that idea yeah um but with the but with the power he's carrying too right yeah doesn't does he give him that weird gun that looks like a machine gun is is that where he gets it or did he get it somewhere else he might i don't know if he got it somewhere else or from him they don't really establish that they just oh, okay. show him getting it into the flower box later on right um, right right okay never mind then. yeah pro- I'm, I'm conflating the two no it's all good but then then we then we also get johnny going and renting out the the hotel hideout from joe piano yep. which great yep. name joe piano yeah and i love that actor he's been in a million uh like noirs yeah, it, and the the exchange about it, like, because he it's Tito Tito Vulalo, and he's in Shadow of the Thin Man. Um, oh, he is. He's okay, the, he's the guy who pushes the sea bass um, uh, in uh, in the weight staff. He's just like try the oh. sea bass, <laughs> um, but uh, he. Uh, his like he's very cordial again the whole criminal community here is cordial as shit and like going like so nice you don't have to pay you don't have to pay me you're a friend of my friend you know and he's just like no 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 i insist just i you're a i'm a friend of your friend and so therefore i want to be friendly to friends of my friends somebody (laughs) (laughs) and i won't i you don't have to pay and therefore i will pay you the ten dollars a week it costs to rent a bungalow, which was probably like what fifty, sixty dollars now. Like that's that's got to be it. That's because that's about the price for a hotel today. Like if yeah. you're lucky, <laughs> but yeah, but not for a week. No, $10 not for a, a week. week. No, da- it's a day now. It's like per day now. Um, yeah, but then uh, we get to Sherry waking up early, um, and uh, we are alerted to that fact by four days later at seven thirty a.m. And I'm like, yes, bah! yes. Yes. Stop it, narrator. <laughs> no. <laughs> UA paid me. I'm going to do my job. <laughs> um, so she pushed. She, the, the conversation in the kitchen is interesting because from here on out, it's mostly like us talking about the robbery and how everything gets mucked yep. up. But this is the yep. last like true emotionally tense scene in the movie 
from a character standpoint because she inquires if he's nervous about the robbery and about if it's if today is the day and and George is just like you you got to stop asking about that you know what'll happen if uh Johnny knows that you're pushing this issue and right. she goes like yeah I, uh uh there's something I didn't tell you that Johnny told me is that if I didn't butt out that he'd break my neck and then she claims that Johnny raped her. Yes. And then that's when George becomes a uh, a, a delayed fuse that's going to go off at any minute. Yep. Uh, and then that's when she's able to get the information out of him of like, it is today, isn't it? Um, the, the sinister nature of that scene is so... One, it's mo- it's it's mostly that one shot. Right. No cuts. Right. It's It's very unnerving because you're watching her slowly but surely like seal George's fate. It's like, you know that that guy's going to come unhinged and it's going to come at the cost of not just him, but her. And like, she's in a way she's digging her own grave by doing this. Absolutely. And it's, and it's just so like, it's just, it's, it's almost aggravating because you don't hate George. Like if anything, you want George to get out of that. It's again, Jack Torrance is trying to get him out of this toxic relationship. That's right. Come up to my cat, come up to my shack over at the overlook, (laughs) you know, get away from this and then we'll all go to a mediation later. Um, But uh, the, uh, the, the look on his face with his, Mouth, hand over his mouth. Yes, yes. And his eyes, his eyes are saying everything. Like this is Elisha Cook Jr.'s like P. This is what you nominate him for an Oscar for. Like this is amazing work that he's doing without saying a word. It's it's a great character for him, and he he milks it for everything that it's worth. Totally. And then we. uh we're going to begin be, uh, th- this heist because earlier that morning at 5 a.m., Red Lightning that's was fed right. only a half portion of his feet. <laughs> you stop it. <laughs> yeah, I see. Now, that's the part where I'm like, do I really need to? I mean, it interest, it's interesting that you would. OK, yeah, you feed the horse half of what you usually get because he's running today. But was it really? I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Stanley, was it was it essential? Well, yeah. Don't you want to know how much a horse needs to race? Like that's important facts about life. And then my movies are about life and, and humanity. And right. man, where's the camera? And um, and so it cuts to Johnny saying goodbye to Marvin. And we got to talk about this scene. Actually, this is the last that's human the moment. Scene. Yeah. And this is the scene where I, I it really hit me. If we're going to talk about. If we're going to bring up gay subtext. So first yeah. of all, Marvin's in bed and I guess they're sharing the apartment, right? Cause, uh, cause he had said earlier, my friend, let me stay. Yes. Uh, yeah. Johnny's like my friend, let me stay. Mm-hmm. So I guess he's right. Getting ready to go start the, get the wheels turning for the, for the heist. And he sits on the edge of Marvin's bed and shakes him awake. Mm-hmm. Marvin wakes up. And uh, I don't know if you have any of the dialogue available, but it was basically like, Johnny, I, I don't know how to say this, and I don't even know if I have the right, but I've always thought maybe you're like my own kid. Yeah, you can say anything you want. You've had a lot of rough breaks, and maybe you've made a few mistakes, but after today, the good Lord willing, you'll be a new man, a rich man. And that can make a lot of difference. Got a lot of life ahead of you. A lot of people to meet. People of quality and substance. What are you getting at? Wouldn't it be great if we could just go away, the two of us, and let the old world take a couple of turns and have a 
chance to take stock of things. It can be pretty serious and terrible, particularly if it's not the right person. Getting married, I mean. You better go back to sleep. You should come with me and, and we'll start a new life together. And Johnny's like, I got to go. Yeah. Don't come to the track. Yeah. please. Oh, yeah, right. And yeah. he also says, uh, go to the movies or something like that. He goes, just don't go to the track. Yeah. And so, so what does Marvin do? He goes to the but track. Go, but this is key. Johnny leaves and the camera lingers on Marvin's face. And he's not happy. He's pained. Because, mm. oh, because Johnny says this is probably the last time we're ever going to see each other. Yeah. No, that's a uh, very I, good point. Yeah. And you're a really good guy. And I just wanted to let you know that. I wasn't reading uh, into it that way initially, but you're right. Like that, that does add way more of a layer than I was expecting. Like, he's like, dump the woman. Mm-hmm. Come with me. We'll go somewhere. Yeah. Under the false pretense of you being like a son to me. Yeah. And that was my Man. fault for taking that line at face value. Like, it's- yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not your fault. I mean, I just, it's different no, yeah. readings, but, but it, 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 yesterday was the first time it really kind of, uh, was evident to me and just how, and the fact that he's in bed and he just woke up and it's, it's kind of like a husband and a wife, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. when a husband wakes up his wife, I'm going, I'm going out to work, honey, have a great day. That sort of thing. Right. Which is like the exact opposite with Mike when he's going to go get the key to then take the shotgun in the flower box to um to 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 the locker at his workstation um, right. the their exchange as a married couple which we're getting kind of into the heist now we can kind of talk about these isolated moments that yeah. one is much more like the traditional setup and the way right. marvin rolls out of bed who knows what happened it's like right and like or who knows what marvin was doing while johnny was in another bed and like he and you could you could lay it upon oh well Marvin's a drunk like he definitely stumbles around later on which now now looking yes, at does. it based off how you mentioned that and how he goes up to Johnny and Johnny gives him that look and he leaves before the fight breaks out very much a like get away you're bothering me and right, Marvin right. looking dejected and, right and and he wants to be there and see him one last time I mean I'm reading that into it. But maybe that's why he shows up, just so he can be around him again. I think it's legitimate, though, might because... Be stretching it. Yeah, because that would explain why he even comes in the first place. It wouldn't right. just be like he's... Because he, they never describe him as having nerves about this whole thing. George is the most nervous person about this heist, period. Apart from right. Johnny, who's nervous because he is a master of efficiency to a certain extent. Like, he's he's covered every angle of this heist as it unfolds. He's and, timed everything, right? That was, mm-hmm. the, that was the thing you get. He's, he's very into precision, and this is the way it's going to go, mm-hmm. and this is what we're going to do. Would it help if a narrator explained it by the timetable? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess... Uh, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, then uh, it was exactly 7 a.m. when he got to the airport. And then you get Johnny getting the luggage uh, or the, his, some of his luggage check getting the airline airline flight. Yes. Um, yes. And then we got we cut immediately from there uh, to uh, uh, the motel where he brings in this flower box from the florist. He replaces it with a shotgun. And then he right. starts practicing the line, get down. And then <laughs> get down. Come with me if you want to, to live. live. <laughs> James Cameron definitely saw the killing. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, a, and then he goes to a bus station. He leaves the 
flower box at the bus station. Mike says goodbye to his wife, <laughs> goes and gets the key, gets it from the bus station, brings it to the track. We start really getting into the track here. And I want to bring this up because we start seeing different uh, outcomes of the different sections of the heist as it uh, pertains to uh, the lands down stakes. And that's the reason why they're really robbing it is because this is where a ton of money is going to be coming through the $100,000 lands down stakes, which will bring in all the cash at about $2 million, which is about $18 million today. So wow. that's a huge chunk of change for a cop who's got a loan shark, that's for sure. And so the the way they un, the way this all unfolds, um, Mike arrives at the track to do his job as the bartender, uh, and then uh, we have Randy phoning in a fake report outside of the racetrack about right. his box being on the fritz. Then he gets in his cop car for an, on the specific timetable of leaving to arrive to the track. In the process, ignoring a woman who genuinely needs help. I love that. I love that. Please, please. I, I, they're going to kill them. They're finally going to kill themselves. Please, please. Sorry, lady. You're not from a high-income area. We police only <laughs> help the rich. Goodbye. Unbelievable. It was It was funny, though. And it's, yeah, oh, in yeah. It's, it's very funny because you are kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> really? In, in a normal like heist movie, this might actually be what distracts him into doing his job and thus throwing off the timetable. Yes. Instead, what throws off the timetable is a logical thing, which is the track traffic as a result of all the incidents going on. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And we get Randy speeds off. He arrives. And I love how the narrator, like, you know, as annoying as he can be, he, I like how he goes into this, like, he knew the entire success of the plan, depended on his inac his accuracy of arriving at the track at the exact correct moment. A minute or two early was allowable, but 10 seconds late would be fatal. That's right. That's like, right. It's like yeah, you yeah. have to be like, dinner is at 8, not 7.59, 8 o'clock. Right. <laughs> wait, but 7.59 is okay. 8, eight, eight, eight and 10 seconds? No. Eight, eight, those were her tardy, do not get fruit cup. <laughs> like, as to quote, I anxiety. Yeah, that's right. Anxiety, right? Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm only I'm only 30 seconds late. You're so strict. Um, and so we get to the chess academy where Maurice goes to see the cashier Fisher. Says like, if I don't come back, call this Mister Stillman and let him know that Maurice requires his services. And then he, you know, he, he kind of posits just like sometimes it's best not to know everything, Fisher. Okay, bye. bye. <laughs> like it's, this that, once again. That's the first time I've heard that line of dialogue clearly yeah i think it helps when like soundtracks get cleaned up too because his his accent is very very thick um very. like i needed to like adjust my volume to fully understand what he was saying because i don't have my sound bar set up yet so like it, it just it once i got it i got it especially when i was re-watching this film and taking notes for it i had my earbuds in and i was oh that's good and that that's helped good. me immensely um, but then we get into the Rans down stakes and we see all this footage of the horses getting prepared and everything's like going according to plan. Uh, we've got Maurice sees Johnny um, inside the bar area and that's his cue. Picks on Mike and goes, how about a, how about some service, you stupid Irish pig? And I'm like, wow, <laughs> Jesus. Grand Torino happening in a second here. Uh, yeah, and this is, this is where we get something that I feel like John Carpenter must have seen this and went, well, I've got a movie called They Live. 
and I've got a wrestler um, in my movie, I'm wondering if I need to do the same thing because we get a display of Cola's wrestling skills to the point totally. of taking his shirt off, seeing yeah. Harry back <laughs> and everything. It, it is it is so explicitly I've got a wrestler in my movie and I'm going to milk that for all it's worth because um, the shots are wide. They don't yep. push in and you give him yep. a wide berth to watch wrestling unfold in real time. And so all the cops get out there and try to start tackling him down to the ground. And as that's happening, um, you know, I, you, you'd think that the whole heist would just proceed from there. But it's no, 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 no. At 11.40 that morning, Nikki left his farm. Uh, well, and that's where the narrator comes in because mm-hmm. you're thinking things are going to be, and if, if it's like, okay, while you're watching, the, you know, like books, right? And they'll, they'll go back. The next chapter will start an hour earlier because, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it I that's why, again, I think it's a handy tool. If an audience isn't used to seeing that structure, it helps them. It, it allows, like, Right. B- bringing it back to Nolan, for example, like if you if you don't have that kind of setup for this kind of time fuckery, like, you know, obviously Quentin Tarantino helps with that in the 90s. But Dunkirk is built off of this premise of understanding how time works. If you don't right. understand that it's a week, a day, an hour, then you're going to be lost into how the timetable fully works. Once you understand that, the movie becomes so much richer. And I think it's the same with the killing it's just that it thankfully has a helping hand. Like, it's almost like I'd want to show this to somebody before I show them uh, Pulp Fiction or Dunkirk. Just be like, hmm. "This here's what here's what movies can do. They can fuck with time. Like, right. a, an hour can be thirty seconds in the eyes of a film if you do it correctly." And we get to Nikki leaving. He goes to the track. He arrives at the track, and uh, this parking attendant tells him there's no spaces and. So he puts on the whole routine of having a bum leg and being in the war, to which this real war vet says, all right, come on in. I do love how this attendant stands up for himself throughout the entire performance. Uh, seeing a, yes. seeing an actor, an African-American actor of this era doing that. Uh, is, is His name is James Edwards. Uh, yep. uh, he would uh, be known as Private Peter Moss in Home of the Brave. Um, he would be in the, he was, he was a messman in the Kane mutiny, which I thought was interesting. Um, I didn't know that. and he was in a lot of 60s television, like Dr. Kildare, Mannix, Burke's law. Um, he unfortunately, but I know him young though. Like, it's, yeah. And, but I know him from the Manchurian candidate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And he was kind of, uh, you know how they say there's no Denzel without Sidney Poitier? There's kind of no Sidney Poitier without him because he, at that time, refused to take roles that were demeaning, mm-hmm. that were that were uh, stereotypical, let's put it that way. Which he, in, in turn, is coming off of the shoulders of somebody like Teresa Harris, who, like, she... She would play a maid, but she would push for bigger things, and she would right. she would outspokenly speak about the injustice of that. Or Butterfly McQueen, in the same respect, like she left Jack Benny's program because she didn't. She thought she was going to play one of Rochester's girlfriends, not Larry Livingston's maid. Right, right. You know, right. so like there's the 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 um, the stepping stones of watching those yep. performances grow and develop in the face of adversity is like it comes to a point in the killing where like he's talking back to that white guy. And my feeling is the code let that happen because the, Nikki's a scumbag. And so like, it's, it's, it's reasonable for him to do that. 
Like, but he's also really nice too, and and yeah. and it's just it's it's funny because he's just like because he they realize he he li- uh, what's his name Nikki lies by saying uh, I can park please let me park here I want to watch from my car I'm a paraplegic I'm from the Battle of the Bulge yeah and he goes oh mm-hmm. and so they're they're commiserating as as veterans right yeah and then, and then he keeps coming back and saying hey I brought this for you. Hey, I brought this for you. Oh, and I also brought you something that will be part of your demise. And then that's, good luck. And that's when he says, "Get away from me, you N word." And this yeah. is the first film we have covered that uses that word in the entire. Is that true? Of the show, yeah, yeah. It's funny when we talk about Emperor Jones at some point, we're going to be dealing with a lot of that word, <laughs> but also talking about how wonderful Paul Robeson is in that movie. This situation is like, and it really affects him because he goes like, "Yes, sir." Sorry to bother you. Now, I had the feeling, though, that the parking attendant knew something was fucking up, and that's why he kept interfering. Oh, with I thought he was just being nice. Here's a horseshoe for good luck. Mm-hmm. And, and and he doesn't just, I, if I'm not mistaken, he doesn't just say, yeah, okay. He goes, yeah, boss. You yeah. Know, like in a, in a stereotypical, like, F-U way. Yeah, in a mocking way. And I think you could read it either way. But the reason why I think... That's the case is because he's pretty quick on the trigger to go stop or I'll shoot when he backs away because he does the he does the pot shot at red lightning and then he backs out. But that (laughs) he throws he throws that uh, lucky horseshoe out the window. And what happens when a horseshoe gets thrown out? It gets pissed. And so it ruins his (laughs) tire. And so that allows the parking attendant to shoot Nikki at the in the back. Um, and then that is that who shoots him. I thought it was a cop or something. No, it's the parking attendant. Cause he goes, stop or I'll oh, shoot. I, be- I, oh. I believe I saw him in the background there. I'm like, he's in the I corner. could never tell. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to look again. Regardless look again. though, uh, Nikki was dead at 424, and it's like, wow, do you want to tell me how he died? Yes. Died by gunshot. <laughs> well, I like uh, He won't be able to collect the other $2,500. <laughs> you could say, you could, you could say he's about to be short changed. <laughs> Hey now. Oh, I'm the narrator. And then it cuts to the luggage spot where Johnny is grabbing a suitcase and uh, be able to carry it on the plane. Uh, Johnny arrives um, in the city. Uh, Johnny Clay is still in the city, gets to the uh, track by the seven race. We get more race footage to where I was going, hooray, more horses. Um, and then <laughs> with the chaos in motion, uh, we see Johnny grabbing the Grabbing the, uh, 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 grab it, getting in the door into the offices, goes to the locker area where Mike, uh, hid the flower box, uh, with the gun in it, gets the gun out. Uh, then he, uh, uh, gets on a clown mask. And then there's a deleted scene where he looks in a mirror and goes, Why so serious? Uh, um, is there really? No, is that, I'm I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, don't play with me like that. That clown mask, I'm sorry, if Nolan's a huge Kubrick fan, apologies to my friend Matt Willicks. I'm sure that he's inspired, like, there's a nice little Easter egg from the Joker's first heist on Batman, the TV show, as being the reason that those masks are there. Huh. But it's got to be the killing because who else would. Why else would you put that mask on in the middle of a robbery when you're already a clown prince of crime? <laughs> like that. True. Yeah, it's almost just like, why should I have to hide? <laughs> like that. That wow. is a the mask here. By the way, is haunting because it's not. Oh like, my god! It's not. It's... The, it's not the mask in the Dark Knight where it's just like a plastic one that then he pulls off and goes straight. Yeah. This no, is it's a rubbery. <laughs> it was like. 
it was almost like I was going to hear Charlton Heston going like, you know, Sterling Hayden told me the way to act through that mask was over-accentuating. Yeah, Yeah, the lips move. It's almost like a second skin. Yeah. It's it's, an amazing mask. I was, was, this is Sterling Hayden. I was the original Leatherface. Uh, Now can I have some money? (laughs) Uh, And so he goes into the cash offices and instructs them to, you know, get a gunpoint, open everything in the safe, gets all the money in a bag. Uh, gets them to go out another door and lock themselves in a closet, essentially, takes off the mask, throws the money out the back where it gets picked up by the cop. Uh, well, we don't know that, right? No, because we it's, don't. You don't see that. And that shot is one of the ones that looked... Well, we'll get to that part. but you, Because you, when you first watch the movie, he throws it out the window, and you're like, who's there? Yeah, and they don't What's specify what Kennan's job is specifically. They that's, actually, that's right. The narrator is very ambiguous, going like, I'm not going to tell you how he's important, but he's right. very important. I'm <laughs> keeping this from you. Yeah, I'm also very good at screenwriting. Will you guys read my script one day? Like, <laughs> no, 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 I'm good. Thank you, though, for doing the job that you're doing. Okay. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, we then get... Johnny escaping in the mid the chaos um, downstairs. He gets held up by a cop, but punches that cop out and then leaves, which I'm like, he's seeing your face, dude. That's why there's cops waiting for you at the airport later. You punch yeah. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. Although he is wearing those glasses. So it. Yeah. I guess the sunglasses are supposed to hide that. But it's just like, there's mug shots. They can match. Like, yeah, it looked like him with the lips there. That the lips and the. I mean, he's chiseled. Like, he almost looks like an actor of some kind. Like, <laughs> and, uh, and then the next shop is the radio announcer announcing the robbery news over the air. And we have Mike, Marvin, Randy, yes. and George waiting to get yes. their cut. Uh, and uh, Randy's going like, yeah, they didn't buy my excuse, but I'll just get a slap on the wrist. He probably thinks I was just drunk in some bar somewhere, which I usually am. Like, who out <laughs> heels when you believe me? And George is pacing, going like he's supposed to be here at 7, 7.15 or 7 o'clock. Like, actually, the, Something like that. Yeah, the time. I think the time frame actually gets a little jumbled because they're they're claiming one time, but then... The narrator claims that it's it, that he's 15 minutes late from another time, and I'm like, who do I believe? And then I'm like, well, one of them speaking from the ether, so I might I might as well believe God before I believe George. Um, but, but this is where we get that shot. We were talking about shots that look modern, uh, and and uh, what's his name, the policeman? What's his name, Randall? Ke- Randy Kennan. Yeah, Randy. He's like, <clears throat> oh yeah. And as he's talking, this is very modern. As he's speaking you see the duffel bag flying out of the window mm-hmm. next to his police car. And I was like, yeah. wow, I have seen this shot a million times yeah. in the 90s, especially. Yeah, the inner, and, the inner cut of like, by the way, how did you get away with it? Like, and then just... Right, and as they're describing it, you're seeing it, right? Yeah, or, the, so, yeah, or, or they like withhold information, go like, ah, it's my secret to hold. And it's like, but we, the audience, know. It's Yeah, it's a weird cut to have in a Golden Age Hollywood movie, very much yeah. so. But that's oh, why very. I think it's separates it from a studio production as this is an independent film. And so consequently he's, you know, if, if James Harris is putting his money in, he has a say and it's United artists who still at this time was trying to cater to the artist's intention as opposed to the, the the studio's intention. Um, Although their financial situation would always would lead them down, down dumb roads because of that. Um, Now, but as they're waiting though, Val enters with his compatriot and goes, uh, I, 
I love this. Like a little lady told him, and then he goes, "All right, now where's the jerk? Where's George?" Uh, because they're gonna hold him up for the money. But then George comes in and asks no questions, just shoots them dead. Everybody dead, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, everybody dead. And I, I, I love the shot. You were talking about modern shots. The first person perspective of him climbing all over the dead bodies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is yeah. incredibly raw. And it seems simultaneously by Johnny, who arrives at the meeting place at 729. Um, he goes to the motel first and grabs the bag and heads to the meeting place. But he gets there late. He sees George stumbling out. And so he's just like, well what do I do? And the narrator goes, can I tell you? <laughs> That's right. I'll let you know. Yeah, the, the money was to be saved by whoever pro- had possession of it at the time without any consideration of the fate of the others. The money to be divided at a later date. And I'm like, wow, thanks. That's, that's they, they had all their bases covered. Well, I was the seventh man in the group. <laughs> um, so, I want uh, my cut. Yeah, he, he wa- I want my cut, damn it. <laughs> you don't give me my cut, I'll make the air, the money fly out of a suitcase at the airport <laughs> it's the narrator's Man. fault that's why it's not fake that's it's the narrator it. the narrator controlled the dog that does the thing at the end we'll get to it but um yeah so he actually uh he books it and he goes to fly uh, he he buys luggage to fit all of that money in and the suitcase does not work and he gets i, I think he gets the wrong key i think that's what happens well here. the the key's yeah, keeps spinning around, but he, here's the, this is, I swear, like an hour before we're, we're taping this, I thought of this. It's actually extremely funny to me that he had $2 million and he buys the cheapest, shittiest suitcase mm-hmm. from a pawn shop. And I'm like, I know you're in a rush. But, dude, why are you? Why did you do that? Oh, I, I, I took some lessons from a violinist uh, who lives out in Beverly Hills. Um, he goes by the name of Kubelski. Like this is a Jack Benny move. Just like, yeah, buy me cheap luggage. I don't give a shit. I just don't want any of my two million to go away. Like, yeah, it's just it's. There's a lot of. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of mistakes. Some. I mean, for someone who thinks things through as much as he does. Mm-hmm. He did not think this through. I think also the, the the combination of George stumbling away, bloody, combined with him being late, he's like, everything's already amid any... I just have to think fast. But that's, right. again, his downfall. But before we get his downfall, let's go back to George for a second. So uh, uh, Shelly is packing up for her new life with Val, but that's oh, about yeah. to be interrupted by uh, George stumbling in. Uh, and a parrot, which I love a good parrot in a movie, as I've talked about before, goes like, watch out there, watch out there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, that's when uh, Shelly asks him, like, he, she doesn't fully understand at first, or maybe doesn't want to admit that something's happened, but she's just like, you need to get to a hospital and wait for me. And he goes like, you know, your friend Val? <laughs> like, And then she slowly puts it together and she goes, so you had to go and be stupid and tries to get her to be, get him to go to a hospital before he dies, essentially. And that's when he shoots her and she goes, it's not fair. I never had anybody but you. That's, that's not a real right. husband. Not even that. 
just a bad joke without a punchline and then dies. And then George stumbles over dead. The I only... Oh, and knocks over the parrot. Yeah, knocks over the parrot. (laughs) Mr. Benny didn't treat me this way. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I like that scene and that delivery, but it is kind of weird where like your gut punch, you're you're hit with a bullet like that, and your thought is to monologize in very dramatic fashion. Um, and she was and talking. lie yeah and lie there was always you yeah and then uh the 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 she's she was under the school from maria ospenskaya who was a great yes, acting that's right. teacher yeah. i just feel like kubrick made a wrong call having her monologize like this at her end it's almost just like the action speaks louder than the words like as she realizes that he did something stupid and goes like just a bad punchline it's like we already kind of communicated that her feelings on that but But she's so selfish i mean Mm -hmm. you know it's like i I could see that excuse me from her just it's all about me it's It's like if veruca salt grew up and realized that her dad wasn't going to be around to give her anything (laughs) (laughs) like that's what that's what shelly is uh and then we get to the airport and there's trouble with the airlines because, of course, you ever notice how airlines give you shit at the airport? <laughs> um, oh, they wouldn't. They won't yeah. let. They won't let you bring on a carry-on. Yeah, they won't because it's too big. So they it's call over big. the supervisor because Johnny goes full Karen mode and uh, decides a that Karen he mode. needs to. He needs he needs to get on this plane with this luggage in his hands regardless. They offer him a refund, which it's which is very generous because it's past the cancellation point. And he That's just right. goes like, no, 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 just, just just check it. And prior to that, in line was a woman at the che- uh, at the um air, uh, at the airline checker with a dog, a uh, very cute dog. And I I you know I remember watching this the first time and wondering why is he lingering on this shot of this woman with this dog? Right, right. Not knowing the ending. And then uh, imagine my surprise as a as a teenager or not a teenager, a college age kid watching this film and watching him watch the money being transported by the baggage yes. tra- uh, car. And then that fucking dog running out there to chase, causing a spin out and that baggage collapses to the ground and that money whirls around in the wind like some kind of cruel cosmic joke. Like, it's funny because, like, it's I'm glad that they got rid of the ending because it's like this feels more like a Kubrick ending, like something, something intervenes, something intervenes and messes with your right, plans. Right. Um, whether that's whether it's the dog or if it's the thought of ghosts in the in the Overlook Hotel or something like that, or yeah. the, the intrusion of of society into your droogy activities or whatever. I don't know. Like well, but well, walking into spinning airplane blades, to me, isn't as bad as making a person watch something they planned and planned and worked on and planned all fly away in the wind. Mm-hmm. And now, not only are you on the lamb, you've got nothing to show for it. Yeah, zero. You. This is. Like this is a like we'll get to the end and then I'll ask the question about this. So like they go they go to leave and hail a cab, but the uh, guy at uh, the airline uh, at the airline front desk hears about the money flowing and knows exactly whose luggage it is, and then goes to the cops that are basically 
tailing Johnny at the airport or just there. Like they're plainclothes detectives. Well, they're the, probably watching. Yeah, they're watching for someone to. Yeah, exactly. And so the airline guy goes like, that's the guy right there. And Faye goes like, Johnny, you've got to run. And he goes, what's the difference? And the last shot of the movie is just the cops approaching it from Johnny's perspective, from Johnny's perspective. And we get the end. So here's the question that I have. Kubrick uh-huh. gets accused of being cold towards his characters and to his subjects and consequently likes to be mean to his characters in this, in his movies. Um, right. In some cases, unfortunately, to the actors like Shelley Duvall. Um, uh, but that's a, and that's a conversation for another day, but it's important. Um, but I, I didn't see, I didn't see, this was the first time that I kind of realized I don't find this cold because I love Coen brothers movies and they are not cold toward their characters. Like, right. It's more like a hand of God kind of aesthetic that, approaches and whatnot and like i don't i don't personally feel that being cruel to the characters on the page through the way you write it through the script makes you cold and that's where i've started realizing that kubrick's way more human than i recognize because i didn't think about it from those grounds before it's like well you like these directors when they do it what's the difference um, well, I my understanding is that he's he was really big into casting. He didn't want to be a an acting teacher, right? Yeah, it's just like I fucking hired you for a job, mm-hmm. and you you know you can do this. But I think a lot of it in this film, you know, I, the last few years I've become a a big big Sterling Hayden fan. Mm-hmm. More, I was a casual fan, and now I'm. I've been kind of taking a deep dive into his career mm-hmm. and I just, I just got a copy of his book recently, his memoir wanderer it's supposed to be one of the best Hollywood memoirs, but there's always a sense like, um, uh, like in the asphalt jungle, he'll play these really tough characters and there's this undercurrent of, um, uh, vulnerability. Yeah. You know, at the beginning of the movie, after he's had sex with Colin, with Faye, Colleen Gray, mm-hmm. you know, he's sitting on the bed and she's standing and he's buckling her belt. Yeah. It's like this little moment where you could tell he really cares about her. Yeah. And, and he has a, a certain kind of personal code when Sherry tries to seduce him. He's like, get the hell out of here. Right. Uh, you know, so I think the fact that he's the center of it and and the, the the way he shows that vulnerability at the end she's practically holding him up mm-hmm. as they're walking out of the airport yeah and he's just like fuck it it's it's over i give up mm-hmm. i so at least in this movie i think casting him was very important yeah which like i i, I started thinking about this in terms of like the trend in which Kubrick evolves on a character basis. Right. By the time you get to The Shining, like I want to rewatch that movie having done this discussion and look for oh, okay. look for the humanity that I've always seemed to think isn't there. Because I can't imagine that there's not something new I can find from that film from that perspective. Because it does feel like in a certain sense that he physically removes himself from his actors as well as emotionally. But 
I don't I, I think if you're hiring an actor that good, like a Jack Nicholson or a Malcolm McDowell or James Mason, there has to be an intrinsic understanding that they're going to bring emotion to something that maybe you as the writer can't, but the actor right. will infuse it into your material and thus your the humanity bleeds through because of the performer and not necessarily the director. But that's also a smart move on the director's part. That's an in, that's an intuition that you have to make sure that you can achieve what you want to achieve on a technical spectrum or a storytelling spectrum, and then the actors will do their job to provide that support. And that, well, you yeah. know, I just feel like that. That's like a, it. It made this movie doing this episode made me realize that like I might have treated Kubrick unfairly in that respect. And well, I, I will say watching uh, The Shining again, I, I guess when it came out on 4K, watching it closely, and I, um, I don't know if I saw it since I had kids, but being a father mm-hmm. and watching The Shining, I had a different, not a different take on it, but I had weird feelings at certain right. points because it's, it's hard being a father it's hard being a parent mm-hmm. and and he's doing this thing as selfish as he is he's trying to do this thing to help you know right he's support his family so there's those two things at odds uh because he's has a history of not being a good guy but it's it's just very interesting there's a lot more going on mm-hmm. or i guess we're allowed to infuse the film with with greater with, meaning uh, our lives yeah are based on our experiences so mm-hmm. well i mean eyes wide shut is a good example of that too like it's a it's a full-on look at marriage and like what happens like when you're like exploring outside of like what if you've been married to the same person like what happens when you start exploring right. the other avenues of life and like and that's one of the reasons he took on the project because that original novel that it kicked that kicked off eyes wide shut like the idea of like, you know, like exploring different ideas within the same piece about marriage is that that's what fascinated him. The The Shining, I think, is a good example of he, the, like Jack Torrance, similar to George Petey, is in a sort of a marital rut. The difference is that George Petey is selfless and Jack Torrance is selfish. And that selfishness bleeds mm. through, especially okay. in the interview that he does for the Overlook position. Because he, right. he really doesn't want to do it. But as a writer who's probably not getting paid and has a reputation, he has to take some form of work to not right. only do his writing job, but to support his family. And that's like the like I guess like in a in a sadistic sense, it's the the, the the mundanity that you want to avoid as a creative artist. Like you don't want to have to s- stoop yourself to the level of a day job, which is horseshit. But he taps into that vulnerability that we possess as humans. I think it's just that he taps into vulnerabilities from the darker perspective. He's not interested in the light and fluffy that. Right. You know, and I think that that's why he gets tapped with that, that cruelty aspect. But again, the Coen brothers approach this from a noir perspective several times that I don't like you could accuse them of being cruel to their characters, but they're everybody will talk about how like fate plays a plays a hand in a circular motion to bring the characters back to that state. And I feel like Kubrick has a lot of influence in that department because I, I, because I have to imagine that Kubrick fans 
maybe such as yourself, as you already said, you find more humanity the more you watch. So in a respect, like, yeah, a film student might be enamored by the visual acumen of Kubrick and how to work the camera better. But I have to imagine that an actual fan of Kubrick like looks deeper than the than the sum of its parts and really like gets an emotional sway through it. And that's why like it it taught me a valuable lesson of not pigeonholing the director based off of my impressions as a young man. Like I think it if anything, it teaches the idea of growing your film vocabulary and giving a director another chance or seeing it through different lenses. Right. I mean, that's why that's why uh, these films, his films are so great, because as I watch them through the years, mm -hmm. as I've grown up. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I find new things or I feel new things just to, just to bounce back. Speaking of the shining, I just wanted to bounce back and talk about real quick, two actors in this that's shining related. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, Sherry's boyfriend Val is Vince Edwards. Yeah. TV's Ben Casey. Yeah. And, and on a personal note, we both attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Ooh. Uh, we're both alumni, but nice. His buddy, Tiny, I guess is his name, is Joe Turkel, who mm -hmm. was the bartender in The Shining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, I think he was also in uh, Paths of Glory, I think, but he shows up in his movies. So I, I, I didn't want to let Vince Edwards, uh, and Vince Edwards had a horrible uh, gambling addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Race gambling addiction, which is kind of interesting. But, um, uh, I just didn't want the this to go by without mentioning my boy Vince. Oh yeah, no, he is remarkable in the film. He does his job so well. He he plays that sleaze to the letter, like he is he's perfect in that role, and and I love that with the Sterling Hayden front. I love that Kubrick. He didn't always do this, but he brought Hayden back for Doctor Strangelove in a role mm. that I still think is funny because of that scene with him talking about the, the women stealing your essence is what the funny oh my God. <laughs> monologues ever as he's talking to this besieged Peter Sellers. Like it's, it's so like, it's the last thing I'm expecting in a scene like that is to have this discussion. Like I know he's, well, it just shows you how off the wall he is. By the way, if you've never seen a movie uh, by uh, called death by contract with Vince Edwards, Death by Contract, great noir. Ooh. Since we're talking about noirs, it's a great. He's a he's a hitman for hire, and he's got kind of a it's kind of an existential noir because he's been um, tasked with I think hitting uh, bumping off a woman, and Ooh. that's not something he does. It's a really good. It's a, one of those Colombia noir flicks. So Death by Contract is my pick of the week. Ooh, okay. Death by contract. Maybe we'll have to bring you back for it. That, that, that would be a good way to kick yeah, off I like to watch, our track. Yeah, I'd like to watch that again. Yeah. It's very good. Now, the result of this film, though, uh, is that it is put on the back end of a double bill by UA because another picture failed. Uh -huh. um, we talked about the editing situation. The, the previews suggested that uh, audiences would be off-put by the nonlinear structure. They took it over to New York and tried to re-edit it, realized this is, that's stupid, no. And so they <laughs> then they, they re-edited it back to the way it's supposed to be. It got the narration in there. Uh, the film was released to a less than stellar box office, but the critical acclaim was uh, uh, very positive and very encouraging. Um, the The critical 
appreciation for this film. Uh, Variety wrote that the the story of a $2 million racetrack holdup and steps leading up to the robbery, occasionally told in a documentary style, which at first tends to be somewhat confusing, soon settles into a tense, suspenseful vein, which carries through an unexpected and ironic windup. Hayden socks over a restrained characterization, and Cook is a particular standout. Windsor is particularly good as she digs the plan out of her husband and reveals it to her boyfriend. Um, This is a... uh, This this is one that I liked, Time... Uh, time predicted that uh, it would make a killing at the cash booths, which is like ah, uh, get it, see what they yeah. did there, make a killing, yeah, uh. make a killing, <laughs> funny. <laughs> and then, but they asserted that Kubrick has shown more audacity with dialogue and camera than Hollywood has since uh has seen since the uh obstreperous Orson Welles went riding out of town on an exhibitor's pole. As the, uh, which which is harsh. No, I left because tax uh, problems and the McCarthyism time. You're, you're, what? <laughs> frozen peas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun fact: if that's stu- if that town had treated me better, maybe I wouldn't have had to do those commercials. Think about that. <laughs> um, and so, uh, as of today, this film has a ninety six percent aggregate rating on Rotten Tomatoes, based on forty five reviews. An expertly crafted noir with more on its mind than stylish stage violence, the killing establishes Stanley Kubrick as a filmmaker of uncommon vision and control. And I think that that's a great place to kind of land uh, yeah. because the this is the birth of a filmmaker. And rarely do we talk about it from the auspices of somebody who would go on to influence movies up into the 1990s. Uh, that, yeah. I think, is like the strongest aspect of this Clint Eastwood we haven't talked about as a director we've talked about him as an actor which I guess sort of lies in tandem but this is a man who visually changed the language of films over time and all the elements are there from the birth from the birthing place of you know killer's kiss fear and desire and the killing and I wanted to know like what do you think that the killing does to establish things you see in Kubrick films down the line like what's a big Kubrick films yeah um, well, I, 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 so this is an interesting tidbit that I, that I heard. Uh, I didn't know Kubrick was really into Max Ophels mm. and that's why he was moving. The, there's a lot of camera movement in this mm-hmm. and he was influenced by him. Uh, and he would use a lot of camera moves, especially in, as you remember, um, uh, paths of glory, right yes. through the trenches and all that. Oh yeah. And and the uh, but then when he was making um, Spartacus, it turns out that he was told that the Technorama camera strobes if you move it too much. So if you watch that movie, it's it's locked down a lot of the time. Right. So ever since then, he was locking down his camera a lot. Now that's for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I just see, uh, to be honest, I see a guy just trying shit. Mm-hmm. Not not throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks, but but experimenting and, and, and trying to, um, I guess, expand his palate. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily see. Oh yeah, that's from The Shining, or you know, although it's, it's still it blew my mind last night with the with the dialogue describing the talking about rather the the um 
the sack coming yes. out of the window. And I was just like, oh my God, I've seen this so many. I mean, that was like that that was like looking forward. So um just a lot of creativity. I just uh I don't know if I can really necessarily put a through line, mm -hmm. except it's the evolution of uh a director. Although I always consider like this is the end of that period. Yes. Yes. Then it's paths of glory. And that's like his mod, like there's this experimental starting out. I want to make a couple of, sh I make a couple of short films and make three, uh, like a really kind of relatively shitty feature followed by a kind of shitty feature followed by something really solid. Yes. Now I'm, now I'm going to tackle harder, uh, topics. Yes. Which starts with pads of glory. He right. has this weird intermittence with Spartacus because that's kind of like a that's a Kirk Douglas bringing. And him he's aboard. a hired hand. He brings him on to you know, but he respected him. Yeah. The thing is, he respected him, and that puts him on the map as a as a box office. Yes, director. which gives him the freedom that he wants. I think that the the connective tissue to his career is not so much in the visuals or even the storytelling. It has to do with Stanley Kubrick as we know him today as a director as a person we're talking about a figure who has a lot of contention around him as the way of his behavior. But if you look into the early parts of his period, he was not always like that. Um, in right. fact, when he was making killer's kiss, he drove one of the actresses home after calling the day early and like, why are you being so nice? And he was pretty honest. He was just like, nobody's going to benefit from this movie except for me. So, like, you kind of get an insight into his psyche in that respect. Right. The way he treats Lucian Ballard on set, um, the way he is insistent on the story being told his way. He's a filmmaker who didn't grow up through the ranks of the studio system. As a result, he knows nothing but, well, it's my film. My right, film. Right, right, right. I think that the killing is the beginning of a series of patterns that happens in Kubrick's behavior in how he asserts control over his crew and cast. Um, I think that I'm not going to draw a connective tissue to that and the way he treated Shelley Duvall on The Shining because that's that's different. That's that's a whole other... That's a whole yeah, other bag of cats where... Because, yes, Kubrick had problematic elements about him, but if you look at his... It's funny because if you look at it in, from the other perspective, it's like that it, for all the faults he had, he was also a very devoted family man and took his time with his stories and, and was disappointed like any other human being could. Valued his privacy, which I think is very rare for directors. Like not all Lobachowskis are the only ones that I know that really guard their privacy like a vault. Right. Um, and But I think that it's a matter of asserting control over the image. One thing is for sure that Kubrick never really compromised and I think that even as far back in the golden age of Hollywood, he was not willing to concede. And that is a very influential yep, yep. asset to filmmakers in both positive and negative aspects. And I think it's important for a, a filmmaker or a film student, if they're, if they're listening to this or if they're looking into Kubrick period, you know, like take, take, take that knowledge both for what it benefits and what it detriments because Telling off your DP is one thing to assert your control as the director, but it, it's another thing if you start pushing that boundary out of control the farther you go down. Just because you get a taste of power doesn't mean you right. keep that going 
like to an unhealthy degree. So I think it's like the beginning of a thread with him from like a noir standpoint. I think it allows the heist film to grow into a maturity that it may not have had prior. Um, not to say that other heist films didn't have this before, but I think that the language of it is so prominent. And I think Jim Thompson has a lot to do with this. The way that thieves talk to each other in movies, this is like one of those ground zeros for it because the way they talk to each other in a certain respect, it's like it's no different than watching Ocean's Eleven to some extent, the the remake. Mm. Um, it's no different than watching the way they communicate to each other in a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's definitely for sure. And right. I think that, you know, it has little Easter eggs that have found their way into film culture. Like I said, The Dark Knight, um, the way that the heist scene is filmed in Jackie Brown. Like, I think it's it's another quarry that filmmakers have picked at. Um, but like there's a, there's a, there's a way we can end this, um, in, is how Roger Ebert talked about this film. He added this to his greatest movies list in 2012 in his opening remarks. He wrote Stanley Kubrick considered the killing to fee- to be his first mature feature after a couple of warm up shots. He was 28 when it was released, having already obsessed, ch- uh, having, having already been an obsessed chess player, a photographer for look magazine and a director of March of time newsreels. It's tempting to search for themes and a style he would he would return to in his mas- later masterpieces, but few directors seem so determined to make every one of his films an individual freestanding work. Seeing it without his credit, would you guess it was by Kubrick? Would you connect it to Doctor Strangelove with Barry Lyndon? Question mark. And I think that that's an interesting thing about him huh. is that I've noticed that each of his films is a different genre. There's like, oh, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think that Kubrick was concerned first and foremost of making a good movie and then secondly with his stamp because I think that the effort he shows in each film goes to 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 uh, attest to that. And I think that his stamp comes afterwards. First thing and foremost when I think of Kubrick is a great filmmaker. Second right. thing I think about is his visuals. <laughs> like that's then mm. I think that's an interesting way to look at it with the killing is like, man, he can make a great gangster uh, noir heist film. He can make a good war movie. He can make a good right. French period piece. He can make a good horror movie. Not the best one, but a good horror movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so like, I think that that's the testament to Kubrick with the killing is that like, it's one of the first examples of I can do that. I can do anything. I can make a heist thriller that, that, blows the others away like it's like william wellman looking at little caesar and going like well i'm gonna make public enemy and i'll make it tougher than this i'm gonna make it the toughest film that i can and so i think that that's kind of a cool benefit out of this is that you get to watch a filmmaker grow and i know that it's hard for some younger filmmakers and film watchers to get into this early work but it's like if you love kubrick start from the beginning it's way yeah. more it's way more interesting than starting in the middle. Yes, it yeah. really is. It really is. Because it really you, is. You get to watch this guy grow and like very few filmmakers from this era were given were given that clout and clearance to do that. Cuz John Huston doesn't really have the same effect down the line with his films. Man with No. Man who would be no. king is very much like a studio would have still hired him to do that. Yeah, from the 40s, that would have been a Warner Brothers kind of yeah. charge of the light brigade. Yeah, kinda. like it's, I think it's of that ilk. Kubrick and Orson Welles are the two 
where you can watch the influence yep. grow and you can watch them evolve because citizen and the confidence, King, right? The confidence, yeah, yeah, and the and the I I learned okay, I shouldn't do that. You know, someone learns. You can see them learning on screen. And what is more valuable is in being a filmmaker than making the film and you know watching your dreams come true. I'm like, I think it's learning, and I yeah. think that the best way to do that is start from the beginning. Don't. I mean, if you start in the middle, obviously that's fine. But like, if you're going to go on the journey, start from the beginning because you'll get to watch that growth and that evolution. And it'll be exciting. Yeah, it'll be exciting. And on that note, thank you so much, Tony, for talking well, with me about the Zach. Yes. Just Zach, real quick, mm -hmm. because we mentioned it earlier, and we'd be remiss if we didn't very, very briefly discuss the most important actor in the killing. And that man's name is Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, you didn't talk about me during the show. No respect. No, no respect, respect at, at all. all. Yeah. Where is he? You. Where the fuck is he? Okay. okay. I'll tell you where you can really see him. Okay. So during the fight, okay. The, I'm not the fight, you know, where the wrestler, um, what's his name, uh, is fighting. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of shots where, okay, you're looking at the screen. Yeah. Starting from the right, you see Sterling Hayden. Then there's a door that says something like employees only, yeah. no admittance, something like that. Then there's another person. I don't know if it's a guard or it might be, um, you know, it may even be Marvin. Okay. Right. Then, in, then moving right, there's a front row of people. And yeah. behind the first short person is a man. And that man is Rodney Dangerfield. Wow. Oh, my and you God. see him later on in a longer shot where he's peeking over. I don't know why we're not on camera, but he's, <laughs> he's peeking over the crowd. But that's the shot where you see him. And at first I was like, is that really him? And I was like, oh, shit, that's him. <laughs> and then even and then even the commentator was saying that and that it really is Rodney Dangerfield. Wow. OK, I wasn't so looking it's hard in, enough. Yeah. So it's in the racetrack, in the betting area near the bar um where the where uh the distraction is being done that that so that i need to then definitely upgrade to the 4k for that commentary because the criterion doesn't have a commentary i know i yeah. popped mine in and i was like it doesn't have a commentary it does but have he, uh killer's he verifies kiss. it or no he has a yes it yeah, does killer's kiss right it has killer's yeah. kiss in it yeah so that's actually like for people who like if you're going to the criterion sale next time in july yeah, get that pick up pick get up the that. killing if you even if you want to get the 4k still pick up that one because it has killer's yeah. kiss in it um, fear I forgot it had that because I bought that on 4K. I bought Killer's Kiss on 4K, but I'm trying to buy all 4K Stanley Kubrick when it comes out. Yeah, Fear and Desire, you'll be waiting for for a while. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he doesn't want you to watch that movie. Yeah, nobody. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on that note, Tony, thank you so much for coming here. Oh, thank you for uh, inviting me. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we we'll want you back definitely. I know my my darling Clementine was dropped by you, drop name dropped by you in our chats, and I'm like, oh, that might be interesting to go back to ford and wayne so um but I, there's so many movies if you've done it before it's cool we'll just we'll we, pick up something else we haven't done it yet so i'm like oh you haven't done no, we my did the, we did the searchers that's when we did wayne and ford oh, um, oh yeah oh. so like we i'm i'm not a big john wayne fan or a john ford fan but i'll always go back to them because they're interesting to talk about despite now john wayne's a 
he's a guy i have a little yeah yeah, yeah i yeah. know but but he's done some really yeah, you can't deny that oh, i'm also I'm, a big fan of uh stagecoach of, is great um, <laughs> oh uh but oh the man who shot liberty valance yes yes and james stewart's so in good. that too and he's really yeah, good so yeah. good yeah, we haven't done a lot of westerns, so like that would be a good way to kick back. I'm not a big western guy, but there are certain westerns I adore. Oh, so, yeah. but thank you for inviting me. I I, I totally appreciate it. Wonderful. Thanks for uh, in my podcast debut. Yeah, and uh, but people can hear your voice and see you, and so much that is more true because you are part of the No Soap Radio crew. Um, and I believe at the moment we're working on Armis Brooks as a recreation. We are. And actually, I have a supposedly in the next few weeks, I'm going to be recording a show for, uh, uh, is it Nevada? Uh, New Mexico, I think, Nevada, uh, uh, Public Radio. Ooh. I got involved with a group. They're doing a show, uh, a radio show, an original script. So I'll let you know when that's out. But uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tony. I really appreciate you taking the time. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. Coming up on the program, uh, No Soap Radio crew will be having more appearances uh, coming to its shores because uh, we'll be bringing on Victoria Gordon uh, to the program to talk about The Thin Man from 1934. (gasps) Nick and Nora are finally coming, and they're bringing Asta too, damn it. Want that she's dog. a delight yes. victoria is a delight she so is a you, delight yeah you, uh, that's i can't wait to hear that yeah it'll be a wonderful episode and i know other no soapers have expressed interest and i'm working that's great. on stuff with them um additionally though some new stuff has been booked ready for this punk rock yeah, horror podcast it. will be returning to talk about island of lost souls from 1932 Ooh. so we'll get the return of bella lugosi and charles lawton uh, in one of the premier pre-code horror movies ever made. Stick around for that and so much more. But till all of that and until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.